0: everyone welcome back this episode is a bit of a special treat I, I actually got to be on another podcast called the real secret podcast uh, this is a podcast I was a guest on probably about two months ago debating miracles and I got to join again this time to debate nature the nature of consciousness so I In this episode, Dale is the host, is a Christian, uh, very smart, philosophical guy, and I'm joining him as well as um, as a skeptic, Travis, and we debate uh, basically different theories of consciousness. Um, I will admit it gets pretty technical and philosophical, so it can seem daunting, and especially when you look at the length of this episode, you can. just see how um, long it gets. (laughs) But um, I think we do actually have a great conversation and we're able to actually cover a lot of different topics and have some um, quality back and forth, um, in my opinion. I, just to introduce it, um, let me just say this. Obviously the mental is very tightly coupled to the physical. So whatever your thoughts in the mental world and experience you have is, it's very obviously very tightly coupled to the brain. And the more we've learned about science, um, the more tightly coupled that is seem, uh Seemed, but one of the stranger things about existence is that our mental world is our way into reality itself. And in fact, if you go back to the very beginning of my epistemology series, I start with Descartes and the I think, therefore I am. And that is the exact same idea that you're, we're trapped inside of our brains or perhaps a better way to say we're trapped inside of our thoughts. Um, And that is our view into reality. So as soon as you say the mental world is sort of like a, Um, an emergent sort of illusory thing on top of the brain um, you are actually calling what is arguably the most real thing in existence an illusion Um, since from our own individual standpoint the mental world is the most real thing it's it's how we view the rest of the reality so at least to a degree the mental is actually primary um and I would say this has actually become even more um, a more of a respected viewpoint lately in that there have been more and more philosophers and scientists who have taken the mental world seriously. And one book that comes up in the course of the podcast is called Mind and Cosmos by Thomas Nagel. And he is a very prominent atheist philosopher who thinks that a kind of reductionistic materialism does not, could never actually explain consciousness. And so something else must be found. Um, there's another viewpoint that has become pretty popular recently, at least relatively speaking, called panpsychism, which is this idea that the mental is a part of uh, all of reality, that it is probably the most fundamental thing rather than matter. Um, so even atoms are. Um, have mental properties in some way or another. So things get really weird, but I think that just proves how serious the problem is um, of explaining the mental when, in one sense, it seems so different than the physical. So that's what this whole discussion is about. And um, I hope you dive in and let me know any thoughts you have on it. Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host,
1: Dale, the Real Seeker, and we have a special treat for you guys this week. Uh, we're gonna be doing a, a topic on substance dualism, and it actually came recommended to uh, to me by our first guest, uh, Robert L. White. Hey, Robert, welcome back to the show. Hey, Dale, thanks for having me back on. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, we also have another special treat, so he's a, a first-time podcaster here. Um, <laughs> He's representing sort of the skeptical or the physicalist end. Uh, Travis, welcome to the show.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: Excellent. Uh, so yeah, I'm really excited about uh, doing this show because I, I know um, Rob, both Robert and Travis are very thoughtful people. They, they've done research on their end, and they have uh, you know thoughtful feedback to, to give on this topic specifically. So yeah, I think um, without further ado, uh, let's sort of get into the topic of substance dualism. And the first thing that I think we can do is sort of just start off by giving an introduction, a brief introduction as to who we are, and then our positions on substance dualism. So, um, Robert, I'll I'll turn it to you to give sort of the first introduction there.
0: Sure. Um, So, yeah, thanks for having me back on. Um, It was, uh, I don't know, two months ago or so that we got to chat last, which was a lot of fun with Matt about miracles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, I, um, I've i been going back and forth a little bit with Travis on my own blog that he discovered, I believe, through that podcast. Yeah. And um, I left it hanging, I need to come back. I'm going to come back to it, Travis, because <laughs> we were having a, a great discussion about uh, a really a very specific uh, miracle claim. Uh, but uh, no, I, I was really appreciating the thoughtful um, exchange, and I know you listened to a few of my um, podcasts as well on epistemology, and I uh, appreciated the feedback there. And have you um, have you read uh, Gödel-Escher-Bach? Yes, I have, yeah. Nice, yeah. It's always fun to meet uh, someone else in that camp, because that's <laughs> such a unique book. Um, but. Yeah, so I'm uh, just, you know, but very briefly, I'm a software engineer in Brooklyn. I grew up a Christian, went through heavy downing period before eventually kind of I deconstructed, reconstructed my faith to um, compress 20 years of my life into about three sentences. But um, when it comes to consciousness, um, Dale, do you want me to just go on into a kind of five minute overview of my own thoughts? Yeah. 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 Okay. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I I, just very, at the very beginning, up front, it's helpful that to reference, particularly to to understand where people are coming, for people to understand where I'm coming from, for my philosophy, my epistemology. Um, I have my own podcast about epistemology at robertlwhite.net. And I think the three episodes that really frame how I approach this topic are the ones about uh, black swans and uh, actually software engineering. Um, And I actually studied some AI in college as well, which obviously influenced how you look at consciousness, I think, as well. Um, So, but just briefly, I try very hard to stay as close into my intuition as possible. I think words get twisted very, very fast and... Our definitions very quickly sometimes we don't even know what we're talking about and we're playing this word game um, and it's hard to tell how much it even maps onto reality uh, in philosophy and probably my favorite example of this is I was briefly in a uh, metaphysics class at the Harvard Extension School I dropped it before I had to pay for it Um, (laughs) but in the very first class the teacher brings up the most fundamental metaphysical question which is why is there something rather than nothing and with seriously within five minutes of that discussion people in the class were referring to nothing as if it was a substance Um, and so he quickly the teacher had to quickly restate it as uh, why is there anything at all Um, and to me that's just a great example of even the such a simple concept as nothing people immediately didn't even know what they were talking about. They, they were talking about it as if it was a substance when it literally means no thing. So that is just a general principle when approaching some of these things is so quickly, it's hard to even know what we're talking about. And by the way, I'm still mad at you guys for making me Google things like Leibniz's uh, identity and trans world properties. And like, oh my gosh, this whole week, I've been living in that world. So it, I, I love... <laughs> i love it i i can get into the technicality of it but just so you guys and the listeners know where i'm coming from i try to stay as close into intuition as possible because i think we endanger ourselves getting confused and talking about things we're not even sure we're talking about very quickly so with that said i, I didn't mean to spend that long on that but um just when it comes to consciousness itself i think it's helpful to see to to realize how entrenched physicalism is as a default and so i think any sort of dualism is kind of starting um from behind anyway and my argument for this is that people doubt their own consciousness way too easily. And it's almost laughable how quickly you can get someone to doubt that they're even consciousness based on an entrenched physicalism. Um, I've had multiple conversations with people who are not necessarily even that much of a skeptic. And very quickly you can get them to say things like, well, maybe I'm not even conscious, which to me is laughable if you take a kind of Cartesian route that our own consciousness should be the most obvious thing in existence from our own epistemology you know and so um i think a really good way to put this is um there's a atheist philosopher louise antony uh she debated william lane craig uh about objective morality and i'm gonna actually paraphrase her she applied this to objective morality but i think it applies even more strongly to consciousness and what the, the argument is that any any argument that consciousness is an illusion Will be based on premises that are less obvious than consciousness itself. And I think that actually is a very strong argument that any you can try to convince me all day that my qualia is not real or my consciousness is not real. Uh, and however you phrase that argument, it's going to be based on premises that are less obvious than my own qualia. And I, I know you guys, um Travis, I think I mean, you would you say you recognize the the reality of consciousness? Would you say it's an illusion? No. Okay, yeah, so I I don't think this is pointed towards either of you guys, but there are a lot of skeptics that do pretty much just say it's an illusion, and I think you're just – you're cutting off the branch you're standing on because consciousness is our view into reality uh, in the first place. And and you can see this in a lot of different arguments atheists make, like, um, uh, for instance, when they try to argue against the enduring self, um, like uh, David Johnson – Um, I think was saying that we're badly cloned copies of ourselves as we continue through time. (laughs) And, and as soon as someone says like, okay, I'm a badly cloned copy or consciousness is an illusion. My response I want to say is, okay, well let me torture you then. If your consciousness is an illusion, let me torture you. And of course they're going to say, no, I don't want to be tortured. But if it's really an illusion, then that's like an Amazon echo saying, Don't torture me. But there's nothing morally wrong with taking apart an Amazon echo. Um so we just const when we go down that route of make of not taking consciousness seriously, we constantly undermine ourselves and our words become meaningless. And so I think it's actually a bit of a proof by contradiction. Um, And another debate that I think is really interesting to listen to is Alex Rosenberg with uh, William Lane Craig, because Alex Rosenberg is a reductionist when it comes to consciousness. And as he deconstructs consciousness, he basically eliminates everything we mean by the word consciousness. And so I think, once again, it's sort of a proof by contradiction that whatever he's saying, even if it makes sense, you the place you end up does not make sense. You're not even talking about what we mean by consciousness anymore. So that that is a defense of, let's say, the seriousness, uh, kind of the hard problem, really, the seriousness of consciousness, the reality of qualia, uh, the, the realness of it, and that we can't just dismiss it. Um, I think w- this is where maybe me and Travis would start to disagree is – is once you get to the definitions of like physical and, okay, so this qualia is really real, is it possible that you could still consider it physical? And I I, I guess I would want to leave that door open, but I think what we mean by qualia and consciousness is so otherworldly, so beyond what we mean by the word physical, and that there isn't even a conceptual link between the two. Like there's an association of like behavior of brain states. But as far as like a conceptual connection between qualia itself and the physical, it's so far beyond what we mean by physical that I think we are doing a disservice to the word physical to say it's physical. So I- I'm a big fan of the, the the phrase for all intents and purposes, because I think it simplifies um a lot of complex philosophical debate. So I would say for all intents and purposes, it's a separate domain slash substance. And yeah, you can posit that a million years from now, we will understand how it's connected. But for all intents and purposes now, and the what we mean by the words consciousness or qualia, and what we mean by the word physical, we those are two separate things. So... That's the end point I get to, and I'll pass it back to you guys.
1: All right, yeah, and I appreciated your, your take on that, um, Robert, like the, the intuitive approach. I think it's it's important to to keep that in mind that, you know, sometimes you can get lost in the weeds of, of detailed arguments back and forth, but, you know, you got to keep that broader perspective, so yeah, I appreciated your, your take there.
0: Um, Thank you. And actually, if I add, I, I realize I, I wanted to add one other quick sure. thing, which is to say, looking from the outside, I would be prepared to say that consciousness is like an epiphenomenon or an illusion or a useful fiction. Um, looking from the outside, the same way we would say that Alexa's personality is kind of an illusion, except that it's the way we experience the world itself it's it's that unavoidable oh crap this is how i'm actually in reality in the first place so once again you're cutting off the branch you're standing on so um i realized that was a good way to kind of sum up my position as well
1: perfect okay uh so i want to turn it over to our, our next guest coming from a slightly different perspective and um i'm kind of interested in, in hearing uh, about his take so so yeah travis uh, go ahead take take some time to lay out Give your introduction and lay out your side.
2: Hey, okay, so um, I'm not a very wordy person, so you you may have to uh, probe to to really pull all the details out. Okay. Um, but I, but I did sort of try to lay something out, so I'll I'll go through that. Um, so to to avoid reinventing the wheel, uh, I'm going to go ahead and bring in uh a class classification system that David Chalmers has put together uh, where he took all the responses that people have put forth to his philosophical zombie uh, version of the conceivability argument and he distilled them down into six types and then within that he defined three different types of physicalism Uh, the first is type a physicalism which is the view that there's no epistemic gap between physical and phenomenal truths um so the, the idea there is that even with our current understanding Philosophical zombies are not even conceivable, they're logically impossible, and this is generally the view that you would assign to those that uh, are in the illusionist camp, like Robert was referring to. And then he identified uh, type B physicalism, which is the view that there's an epistemic gap between the physical and the phenomenal domains, but there's no ontological gap. So the idea, as far as philosophical zombies are concerned, is that they're conceivable, but they're not actually metaphysically possible. Um, In this case, the epistemic gap is generally understood to be permanent, uh, even though consciousness really is ontologically physical in nature.
1: And Travis, just before you continue, do you mind, just for people that might not know, what what is a philosophical zombie? Are are we talking about the zombie? Ah, yes. (laughs) Okay.
2: So... um, Robert alluded to this. So the the philosophical zombie is the the person who is completely identical to us, except doesn't have any experience. So everything down, every physical detail is completely identical to us, but there is no qualia. Okay. Uh, Okay. So then uh, the type C physicalism is the view that excuse me, that there's a deep epistemic gap between the physical and the phenomenal domains, but that it's closable in principle. Um, so philosophical zombies are conceivable. Um, but there is some way that we don't really know. And maybe we'll never know that you can close that gap. And then, um, this would collapse into, you know, either the type a or the type B. So I'm, um, I'm going to go ahead and put myself into the type C position there. Um, But it's, it's an inherently sort of tentative position. Uh, And even this is Chalmers argument too, is that type C is problematic because it's unstable and eventually it's going to reduce down into one of his five other types that he's identified. Um, But I don't think this is a problem. I think this is, uh, Robert will appreciate the the phrase, it's a feature rather than a bug. (laughs) Um, Because I don't really feel obligated to make any commitments based on our current knowledge. And I think uh, the epistemically humble thing to do and the reasonable thing to do when we really don't have the information we need is to have that uncertainty sit there and just be part of your view. Um, So it seems reasonable that we could eventually figure out how to close that gap. And and then the type A physicalism becomes the case, or it also seems reasonable that we could determine that the gap is completely unbridgeable, um, and then maybe the type B physicalism is the case, or um, possibly in the next hour or so Dale will convince me that I should be a substance dualist and that'll be it. I'll try.
0: Okay. Okay. <laughs> we'll see. Travis. Okay. Um, I know this is slightly off topic, but I'm just – I have to um, say anyone should uh, check out Travis's blog. Um, One of the most striking features of his blog is how he has an actual, like, bar chart of his current, (laughs) like, um, uh, confidence in, I guess – christianity and it's it's down to five percent i believe (laughs) is that or (laughs) i don't remember what it is exactly but you also have a very long list of what you're reading and things you're following it's uh, quite an impressive list uh you're someone that obviously takes these issues quite seriously and i would love i mean just very briefly like did you grow up a christian and as slowly deconstructed things or and, and like has your views on consciousness evolved over time as well
2: yeah. Sorry. I kind of skipped over the whole introduction part. Um, yeah. So I grew up, uh, in a, a relatively conservative Christian household. Um, and then, oh, let's see 2012. So about eight years ago, I guess, uh, things started to change. Um, I was, a a leader for you know like one of these small study groups or whatever and uh, that really pushed me to feel like I needed to have a better handle on things and really dig into things and understand uh, some of the topics and questions that were coming up and as I started to do that I um, really began to uh, enjoy digging into the apologetics and uh, started to sort of slip into what you might call like a more liberal Christianity. Like I discovered Pete ends and all those guys, um, and kind of sat there for a little while. And as it just kept going and I got digging into these things, um, I guess eventually I just reached a point where I felt like I was making my own version of religion rather than discovering some, uh, ultimate truth. Um, and eventually realized that i couldn't keep calling myself a christian and that's when i started the blog uh it's measure of faith blog um i used to put stuff up there maybe once a month but now it's like once a year so it's it's really uh it's not consuming very much of my time anymore but there's a fair bit of back content there if people want to check it out um so yeah so i've been engaged on the internet for like eight years in all of these different debates um, and really appreciate a lot of the people that I've encountered and run into and, and have really grown a lot. Um, I don't even think that I had a view on consciousness back then, eight years ago. Um, I was really just sort of a naive common sense kind of guy. And I, I don't think I could even identify an evolution. It's just something that I've, Uh, become more interested in as as part of this journey. And and I've also been... I mean, I'm an engineer and I I work in the medical domain, so actually um, doing ultrasound in the brain. Uh, So this is kind of... Fits fits with the stuff that I do too, so.
0: By the way, we were talking about Gerdel Escher-Bach and when I was looking up David Chalmers, who he is a fascinating guy because he's not religious, but he's staunchly not a materialist. But his... Um thesis advisor was Douglas Hofstadter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I thought that was great. Great connection back to Gerd Scherbach.
2: It all comes back to Gerd Scherbach, right?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> That's the number one rule, right? <laughs> Perfect. All right. Yeah, well thank you thank you for that, Travis. Um I appreciated getting a getting a sense of who you are and your position um on this debate. Um so yeah, I guess it's over to me. I'll I'll give sort of my take and it's gonna be no surprise uh, you guys both heard my my uh, substance dualism solo series. Um, so so yeah, I'm a, a Christian. I, I take sort of the traditional substance dualist interactionist uh, position. Um, now now with that, there are there are different types of substance dualism. And I, I outline um, about three of them um, in my show. So in terms of my own position, I'm, I'm probably atomistic a or Aristotelian dualist um, so that that kind of views the body could actually be a mode of the soul itself it, it's not even necessarily saying that there are two substances in and of themselves it's saying that the physical body could be a, a manifestation of the soul and, and the soul sort of uh, serves as like a, a blueprint for the development of the physical body and that sort of thing um, there are also Cartesian dualists, uh, so that does sort of view more like a ghost in the machine type view. And again, I'm I'm open to this to this type of substance as well. Um, and then there's the William Hasker dualism. So so this is going to be relevant to a question that that Travis wants me to bring up later on in the show. But basically, Hasker believes that when the through an evolutionary process, when the brain reaches a certain level of development, this is when the soul pops on the scene and emerges out of that that physical system. Um, And one thing I wanted to bring up with this is I I did a little research uh, about the Roger Sperry split-brain experiment, and I actually found that there's been subsequent scientific evidence that totally contradicts um, Roger Sperry's conclusion. That about the split brain experiments, and I'll, I'll attach to the peer-reviewed article there. Um, but it's it's basically by Year Pinto, and he discovered, in his words, that uh, when they tested it, first of all, the patients could accurately indicate whether an object object was present in the left visual field and pinpoint its location, even when they responded with the right hand or verbally. Um, and yeah, basically, I won't go into the, the details yet um, until the discussion, but he, he totally overturns this finding, um, of the empiricists trying to say that, you know, there's two souls or two cells or something like that, that, that emerge in these experiments. Um, so yeah, so that's my position in terms of being a, a substance dualist. I wouldn't take a Hasker approach. I would be more of a Thomistic Aristotelian type, um, now, one thing that Brian, with an I, one of our listeners, he wanted me to clarify. So what, what's the difference between a soul, a person, and a mind? Um, so in my estimation, the, the soul is kind of the whole package. This, this is uh, everything that we are. It includes various faculties, sub-faculties, and these sorts of things. The person uh, is kind of the everything that defines the individual, um, you know, it's the conscious I. Uh, so that, that includes things like your thoughts, your personality traits, your feelings, your your moral conscience, um, your free will, that sort of thing. And a mind is sort of a sub-faculty of you you as a person. So this, you know, deals with your rational faculties, your logical reasoning, and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, that that's really how I see it there, Brian, for, for you. So a person is a wider category than just a mind, uh, in my estimation. So, you know, like, things like your, your moral conscience are not a part of your mind faculty, even though they interact with each other and that sort of thing. So, yeah, uh, that that's sort of my position. Um, I guess we can sort of, sort of open it up to a little bit of discussion. Does Does anyone have any, does anyone want to say anything about
2: anyone's positions at all? Or uh i think with the plan that we've got we're gonna get to that so gotcha perfect.
3: i think
0: uh dale with um your person um in your framework i guess is both like qualia but goes beyond that as well yeah yeah okay yeah it's
1: the, it's okay. the totality of it's, it's the it's the totality of, of uh, sure. all okay. of ours yeah perfect gotcha. um Okay, so, so now we're going to move on to the, the next topic. And this was actually a request from, from Travis. And it, it was a new one on me. I'd never heard of it until he brought it up. But it, it's, it's called the meta problem of consciousness. And um, yeah, with, with that said, I'm actually going to turn it over to Travis to introduce us to this. What, what, what the heck is this meta
2: problem of consciousness? Okay. Uh, well, the, the meta problem um, can't really be defined without first defining the hard problem. So uh, briefly, the hard problem is the problem of explaining why there is the phenomenal first-person experience when that feature does not immediately appear to be entailed by the physical description of a conscious entity. So it's in short, it's why aren't we philosophical zombies? Uh, the meta problem then goes one step further, and he this is a, a term that Chalmers coined uh, just a couple of years ago to capture the problem of explaining why it is that we even think there's a hard problem. So uh, to quote him, the meta problem is the problem of explaining why we think consciousness is hard to explain. I think that uh, this is a, a rather important consideration because it pulls us away from having tunnel vision on the hard problem and provides another path to actually solving the hard problem. So for example, we could discover that the hard problem is actually intractable uh, because the cognitive processes that we deploy for explanations are incapable of fully capturing the subjective. Um, The sort of analogous situation here is the way that Gödel demonstrated that incompleteness for formal systems. And that's just one of many possible approaches. I think in the the paper, uh, Chalmers outlines, like, maybe a dozen different ways that this problem could be approached and have a solution, and thereby essentially mitigate the hard problem.
3: Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Yeah,
2: Robert,
1: what what do you make of the the meta-problem of consciousness?
0: Um, Well, Travis, can you describe, again, how it's like the Gödel uh, incompleteness theorem? Um, Are you saying that we could discover that our rational capabilities are unable to grasp the connection what is it again
2: well okay so that to, to be clear that's just an example of one way to solve the math right, problem right. um there's lots of different ways the, different paths you could go down but to raise that as an example yeah the idea is in the same way that Gödel sort of showed that you know there's there's an untouchable set of truths essentially Right, like there's, there's a proof that you can't know something. Um, it would be sort of the same type of thing. The proof is that you can't figure it out, you can't understand how to connect those things in, in uh, the, between the objective and the subjective.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah.
3: Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Oh, yeah, I was just going to
1: confirm. Okay, so yeah, when you're, when you're using that, it's kind of saying like in the same way that the Godel incompleteness theorem doesn't present a problem. Uh, in terms of our lack of understanding, this this assuming that the problem of consciousness is intractable, uh, it it we could just say it's not a problem. We have this epistemic gap, and we can live with. It. Right. Okay. Um. Well, I guess. I guess. by way of counter, though, like, uh, I think that that's it's possible. Like, we should admit that we have epistemic gaps in our knowledge, and and. We just don't have the tools to know things, um, but I would say I would caution on just saying that we can't know it. Maybe we can. Or, you know, I I've provided arguments that may speak or close this gap um, to try and argue that maybe there is a soul, and that would be beneficial for us to know if that's true. Um, so yeah, what do you make of that?
2: Well, yeah, that's definitely the case. Um, I mean, the, the whole point of the meta problem, though, is to consider whether we can actually come up with a uh, explanation for our perception, for our view of the hard problem that essentially makes it go away, right? So it, it's still possible that we actually solve the hard problem instead, right? And then yeah. the meta problem isn't actually a meta problem. Um, but we shouldn't just focus on trying to solve the hard problem. We should also consider the possibility that the hard problem isn't actually there and that there's some other explanation as to why we see the hard problem. Gotcha.
0: Okay. I think with the meta problem, so I'm very new to it. I did read part of the, I believe the first, uh, paper that Chalmers wrote about it and when he introduced it, um, Currently, with my limited um, experience with that problem, I, I have trouble seeing how it doesn't, um, how it's not a sort of simple problem in the end in that, t- to me, the intuitive answer to the meta problem is that we have consciousness. We, I mean, it's what we immediately experience. And our intuition about that is completely separate or it feels completely separate from our intuition about the natural world like they just seem they just seem like two separate things and yeah it is really i mean this is kind of bringing back the meta problem is like wait why does it seem like two separate things well we're, we're it's because we're dealing with something that uh we've reached the bottom as far as uh explaining or describing something, you you can't explain what it's like to see red besides referencing what it's like to see red. But even though we can't explain it very well, we all have experienced this qualia. Uh, And so we experience this qualia, and then we we conceptualize the physical world, and those seem like two separate things. And so I, I guess... I feel like it sort of does reduce to the hard problem, again, that the reason why the meta problem, um, why we give these problem reports, as Chalmers calls them, is because of the hard problem. It's because qualia seems so fundamentally different. And you say, why does it seem that way? Well, you just have to experience qualia to know why it seems so different. (laughs) So um, I, I don't know. I guess I have trouble seeing how it's significantly different than the hard problem. I think the meta problem exists because of the hard problem. Um, and I'm probably oversimplifying it, but that that's my gut reaction to it, sort of.
2: Well, it's definitely true that the meta problem exists because of the hard problem. I mean, it's, it's defined in relation to the hard problem. Um, but it's it's, it, you know, it's a layer up. It's a different approach. It's if you're stuck only considering the hard problem, you're only trying to explain that difficulty that we see. Um, and you're not considering the possibility that that difficulty is itself um, not quite what it seems. Okay. okay. Yeah. I would
0: probably have to listen to more potential explanations for the meta problem to see how it's uh, meaningfully different than answering the hard problem. Um, personally, but Dale, yeah, Dale, what are your thoughts? Huh,
1: yeah, I'm I'm sort of in the same boat as you, Robert. So I yeah, like I'm I was new to this as well when, when Travis brought it up, and I, I think it's great to to raise the issue for for people to become familiar with. But yeah, I sort I sort of see it along the same lines as what Robert's saying. Um, it it arises because of the hard problem. We we do recognize these. That there, is, that there is this hard problem in the first place and it, it sort of by its very nature begs us to, to try to grapple with that and, and you know draws us in to find an answer so I don't know it, it doesn't rest easy with me to just say like maybe it's just not a, a, an issue we, we shouldn't you know we should ask ourselves do we even need to bother finding answers to this or not
2: Yeah. And I should say that the reason I use the girdle analogy is because that's, as analogies go, I think that's about as strong as they get because that's, you know, that's a a mathematical proof. Like there's pretty much no denying that, right? So if you had a similar sort of solution to the meta problem, then it would be uncontroversial. You would just say, oh, well, that explains it. That explains why we have this apparent gap yeah yeah
0: i guess i I guess i don't see how you could apply that to i mean i guess you just apply that to anything we don't understand like uh even like i don't know christians with the problem of of evil it's like well what if there's a meta problem of like there's this epistemic gap where we will never understand god's reasoning and it's like yeah you could posit that but I feel like there's so much groundwork to make up. Well, sure, no one's, no one's
2: suggesting that it's solved or that the meta problem itself is uh, eliminating the hard problem because, oh, now we can just think about that and don't have to think about the hard problem. It's just another, it's an expansion of, of ways to think about the hard problem, right? If you want to call it, it's, you know, it's like the expanded hard problem is the hard problem plus
0: the meta problem. Um, Can I ask you, Travis, like, what is the most interesting aspects of the meta problem? Or do you think there are potential uh, uh, explanations of the meta problem that that you favor? <sighs> um, I, I don't really have a, uh,
2: a solution to the meta problem that I think is particularly compelling. Um, but when I encountered it, I was like, oh, um, that sort of expands my view of the world, right? It's it, I'm not just thinking about the hard problem anymore. Now I'm thinking about whether the hard problem is itself um, not quite what it seems, you know? It's, it's so it's an it's an expansion of the probability space that we can explore as we uh, try to figure out what's going on.
3: Gotcha. Okay.
2: Um,
1: yeah, I think that. It- that covers it for the for the meta problem. Like, again, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was new to me. And I, I don't uh, really have a, a firm answer or solution to, to say to it and that sort of thing. And so yeah, um, is, is there anything else about the meta problem that you wanted to speak about, Travis, because I know this was important to you?
2: No, I just wanted to um, observe that there's there's more to the world than just a hard problem as far as the consciousness debate is concerned. Gotcha.
1: All right, perfect. Um, okay, so I think we can move on to the to the actual hard problem of, of consciousness now. And basically there, there are two main, uh, issues of contention, as I lay, laid out in my series there. So the first one is related to wh- what what is the actual nature of conscious properties and states um, and then the second is, what what's the nature of the conscious subject itself or, or the substance, um, the mental substance there? So yeah, I think what the first thing, let's, you know, concentrate on the first issue of contention in terms of what the nature of our cons- uh, mental properties or conscious states are. Um, and I'll, I'll sort of lead us off in this, since I'm making uh, a positive claim here based on Positive reasons to think that there, the conscious properties and states are of a non-physical nature, and really the the first major argument that people pose here is called what I call the differences argument, and you know Rob Robert and Travis have sort of hinted at this that that there do seem to be inherent differences between physical properties and states and conscious properties and states, so. The first one is uh, sorry the first one is that you know conscious states and properties are uh, felt innerly there's this qualia or you know what it feels like to be it, having a mental state of seeing the sensation of red or being in pain uh, and we have this private access uh, to these qualia and that that's not a property that physical uh, objects have that they're known through third party objectively you can you know come to them through empirical means and that sort of thing so that's so that's the first sort of difference is we have this private access um, and one example that richard swinburne gives to to illustrate this is you know I can imagine uh, a pink elephant in my, in my head so I'm having this sensation of pink uh, in the of an elephant and no neuroscientists in the world cut open my brain and observe the, you know pink uh and oh he's he's experiencing a pink sensation um and then uh, another difference here is that
2: hey, hey dale sorry if sure. i could. do you yeah. want to discuss these one at a time or are you going to go through all three of them and then um sort of go back over them again
1: Yeah, it's, i was planning to do uh all three at once but it's up to you guys would you prefer to um
2: do them one at a time uh, I think it might make more sense, but this is your show, so I'll let you make the decision too.
3: All right. Cool. All
1: right. <laughs> All right let's do it one at a time then. Um, <laughs> I'm happy with that. So, And then the other one is that um, it's we know these uh, things incorrigibly, right? So I can't be wrong. I could be uh, mistaken objectively about whether this pen I'm looking at is in fact red versus yellow or whatever um but this i can't be wrong about the sensation that i'm actually having and and this is because these qualia are self-presenting to us um so yeah this is this is sort of a first difference um in in the nature of conscious states and properties versus physical states and properties so so yeah I'll, i'll turn it over to Um, in the first place, yeah, Robert, uh, what do you make of this? Because I think this is sort of along the lines of the intuitionist sense that you were going for.
0: Yeah, um, it was funny after listening to your four-part series, which I'll go ahead and and recommend to the audience. It actually is a great overview just from a standpoint of, like, what the landscape of some of these arguments um, is, because I, I wasn't super aware, so it was definitely helpful to get some definitions and Sort uh, that sort of stuff, um, and so when I was listening to that four-part series, um, in some ways every argument you could almost reduce down to, look, there's qualia, it's different than the physical. <laughs> like, come on, guys, it's different. And but I, I and I think each individual argument is almost like a mental workout to get. The average person to see how it's different. And so it's like different thought experiments to show you that when we talk about these mental phenomena, we are talking about something ultimately different than the neuroscience itself. And so uh, I think for the most part, I mean, maybe some of the details of, of some of the arguments I didn't totally buy into, but in general, all the arguments I agree with as far as showing that there we are talking about something ultimately different and um and i i think the simplest term for that is is qualia uh so that that's kind of my overall thought gotcha and would you just out of curiosity would so would you you know i i put it in terms
1: of things like properly basic beliefs um you know these the self-presenting properties uh, produce property basic beliefs as, as sort of a on a cumulative cumulative level I guess would you sort of go along those lines as well
0: yes yeah yeah uh that they're properly basic beliefs is that yeah. what you're saying yeah yeah I yeah i think so
1: okay perfect um so yeah let me turn it to travis then so yeah well, what do you make of the this alleged difference that the, there are these self-presenting uh properties like qualea and and we have private access to them and
2: they're known incorrigibly Okay, uh maybe I could start by asking a question. So do you do you think that on the physicalist view the neurosurgeon should open the brain and see a pink elephant?
1: I I think that if if everything is oops, I think you're Can you guys still hear me? It's frozen. Yeah. Okay, my Skype is frozen for some reason. Um I think that the, I, I guess uh, it's kind of a ridiculous thing, but there should be, you know, corresponding light waves. There should be a, a an objective, corresponding thing that produces the pink sensation within us. That's producing this sensation. So they have to be correlated to a physical thing that that accounts for that sensation. Whereas if I'm just imagining a pink elephant, there is no physical correlate that i would say
2: okay <clears throat> um and do you have any sort of deeper explanation as to why you think that would be the case or is it that's just how it seems it's more of an intuition
1: um so it's yeah so i would say when you have like a, a pink sensation you can explain that scientifically as to how The processes in the brain produce that sensation whatever it is you know light waves hit it at a certain in a certain way and then reflect into the brain i have no idea how the the science the neuroscience itself works but it there's something objective out there that produces the response in the brain and then that brain state produces that pink sensation or whatever and i'm saying with in this argument, when there's when you're just imagining a pink elephant, there's nothing in the brain that would correspond to that pink elephant. Okay.
2: Um, if someone was seeing the pink elephant and you could monitor their brain and see all of the different signals going around, um, would that count as like an information carrier so like for example um, right now you guys can see me on skype but if you look at that the t- the, uh, the fiber lines that are carrying this information between us you're not going to see me so how is that situation substantially different from the situation in the brain okay okay let yeah let me phrase it this way then so okay so
1: are the the corresponding physical things, like the light waves at a certain frequency or whatever, is that pink, in the sense that we would, on a sensational level, those pink in and of themselves?
2: Um, that's what we call it.
1: Yeah, but does it doesn't carry, it's just a light wave at a certain frequency and that sort mm-hmm. of thing, right? You're, I'm saying there's this also experiential knowledge of the sensation of pink, the qualia. Sure. And that's not, that's not in the brain that that's not in the light waves or anything like that. nothing physical
2: conveys that information. Okay. So um, I, I guess really, I mean, this comes down to intuitions, but I, I guess I just don't share that intuition. It, it doesn't seem obvious to me that we should expect the self-referential perspective to be the same as the third party perspective
1: but on a on a
0: physical
2: oh go ahead robert
0: yeah yeah if i might jump in um okay if the first person perspective is different than the third person which i think we're all in agreement then where is that first person perspective located like if is there where if it's not physically somewhere then what is it? I guess there is a difference where all three agreeing. There is a difference that looking at the, you know, the brain state is not equal to it. So where is it?
2: It's within the first person.
0: Yeah, I guess to me, then it, it's this inaccessible thing in that first person. And um, I mean, Dale. I don't know if you want to take it. No, okay. no I mean, like I'm I getting at.
2: I, I totally understand that it's inaccessible, but I, I don't understand why I should then conclude that it's different, that it's separate. That,
1: so that the yeah, like the the first person. So this is sort of a, another difference that I that I wasn't gonna get into, but it's the the necessity of having a first-person uh, perspective, right? It, these qualia are inherent to the existence of a first-person perspective, and that that's a difference. F- physical objects in general are not like that. Um, everything about my chair can be explained thir- through third-party facts. Um, everything about my brain can be explained through third-party facts and neuroscience and that sort of thing. There's this unique thing that when we have this first-person perspective, um and it's it's irreducible to physical properties and and states in the brain and the the use of this difference this private access difference is um trying to highlight that and you know they use these examples you you would never be able to get that this certain brain state equals seeing the sensation of pink without that first person perspective saying Hey, you—you you saw this brain state. This equals I'm seeing pink, or I'm seeing red, or I'm in pain, or whatever whatever the quale uh, is that we're talking about. So that's so that's why there, there's this self-presenting nature. Um, yeah, yeah, Trav. Would you admit, in general, that physical objects in general are, are are not privately accessed, like the properties and states of? Well, if they're not conscious yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay all right um yeah Rob, robert do you do you get what i'm saying do you have anything to to add about this this private access
0: notion uh no I, I mean i think i think travis is a interesting one because he sort of sits in between you know the the physicalist that says it's all an illusion you know he doesn't say it's an illusion so to me it's just like how real do you think that qualia is and to me it's from epistemological standpoint it's the most real thing in the universe would you sort of agree with that travis since that is our way into experiencing the universe that from our epistemology standpoint it's the most real thing there is
2: yeah i mean when, when i wrote up a post that um sort of laid out my epistemology that's where i started i started with the cartesian thought experiment and uh, okay i think therefore i am and that was my starting point uh, so i don't i don't <laughs> deny that in any way
1: okay all right well, well what about the um incorrigibility difference right so that there's a different i guess you would label that down to the the first person perspective again uh sort of like i think therefore i am and in this way you're you're directly, as a first person, experiencing these sensations. Um, yeah, how, how would you account? Is this how you would account for this incorrigibility difference? Um,
2: I think I might need you to explain that, or dig into that a little bit further. Fair enough. Um,
1: okay, so... it's basically saying in terms of my mental states and 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 that sort of thing i can know these first of all directly and and innerly through introspection but i know them incorrigibly if if i'm seeing a red pen pretend i'm hallucinating okay and there's no red pen on my desk or blue pen or something like that but i i see i still have this sensation that i'm seeing a red pen now i could be Wrong or mistaken that there is in fact a red pen on the desk, but I cannot be mistaken in that I'm experiencing the sensation of, of redness of the color of redness, and and this is there's a difference here. Uh, you know, I I can't know my brain states incorrigibly, but I can know my mental states, and this suggests there's some kind of difference going on here.
2: Um. I don't know, it seems almost tautological um, that you're talking about your fundamental feature of perception, your, your qualia, and it, that it doesn't reduce to anything else. And it's not explained by anything else. So by definition, it can't be revised uh, because it's, it's already fundamental. There's nothing else that's informing it. Whereas with a third-person perspective, uh, you've got other people that can inform it. You've got updated investigations that can inform it. You've got all sorts of new information that can come in. Um, So I think it's just a a level of information. And again, like you said, that really comes down to the fact that it's the first person rather than the third person.
0: I I think what Dale is saying, though, that even if that third-party information informs your understanding of reality, it cannot inform what your experience was because your experience was your experience um so that's just illustrating how it's different still than the rest like Uh, i think
2: yeah i think that's what he was saying with the private access but with the incorrigibility it's it's the uh it's the the fact that it can't be corrected like you can't bring in some new information to correct it because it's just foundational
0: right right it's that if the pen was really uh blue instead of red you can be told that but that doesn't change your memory of the experience that well what i thought i saw was uh red so that is the incorrigible part
3: right
1: yeah yeah i guess i'm just sort of i'm trying to figure out like you're just using first person perspective but uh, I'm trying to figure out on a physicalist perspective without getting into the question of the nature of the conscious subject, but like these are just brain, on a physicalist perspective, these are ultimately all just brain states. So so what is it that differentiates certain brain states from other certain brain states that allows me to be incorrigible in one versus,
2: you know, can be an error in others? Well, it's not a difference in brain states. It's a difference in... Access one is self-referential and one is going through the senses. One's you know objective third party and one's self-referential.
1: So it's just sort of the intermediary. Okay. Um, yeah. It's again I'm sort of getting locked down into uh, going with Ro- Robert uh, Robert's intuitionist take at, at this level. It's just sort of your. It feels like you're just sort of asserting well there's this first-person perspective but, but again we're trying to make a difference between physical properties versus thing, um, mental properties and that sort of thing so I, I don't see why certain physical states would be differentiated like that the, the first-person label that's just a label we're putting on it, if you know what I mean right like you still have to explain how that comes about
2: how there is this ontological difference so to speak <laughs> does that make sense sir um, yeah i mean and I, I guess that really goes into all the other other things that we'll discuss so maybe maybe we should just move on there huh? Fair enough. okay
1: all right so so the second difference
2: that i wanted to speak about is the
1: the issue of intentionality so mental states and properties display intentionality. They, they, My thought, I have a thought of something, or I have a belief about about something. They're, they're uh, directed towards an external object or that sort of thing. Whereas physical states and properties do not display intentionality, they're, you know, they just are. My, my chair is not of or about anything, it's, it just exists. Uh, same with my brain it, it just exists it doesn't it doesn't have intentionality as one of its properties or something like that um, so yeah that, that's sort of the, the fundamental in a nutshell that that's what the second difference is that I wanted to highlight so yeah I'll, I'll turn it to you Travis what do you make of
3: that?
2: Um, okay so intentionality or aboutness uh, to me just seems like that's just highlighting a relation between two uh, mental constructs or concepts. Um, and the neuroscientific understanding of the brain actually seems very well suited to explain that because uh, the brain is an associative network and you've got uh, different regions or different patterns or you know whatever ends up explaining things in the brain uh, that are connected to each other. Uh, through this, you know, almost unimaginable associative network of synapses and everything. Um, So the aboutness just comes about by having those associations in place.
1: Okay. Uh, And Robert, what do you make of this difference then?
0: Um, I have trouble figuring out, honestly, the language to describe some of these problems. I... I think I intuitively am sympathetic to all of them. And I know, for instance, like an atheist like uh, Alex Rosenberg or even Thomas Nagel, I think, do treat treat these problems as serious, uh, like the problem of inten- intentionality. Um, I think a lot of it, we're, once again, can be re- reduced down to different aspects of what we intuitively experience as qualia and how that could possibly be present in the physical and i ultimately agree that yeah what we experience as intentionality as being about something thinking about something doesn't it seems like we can't really get that within a physical system
1: gotcha okay so yeah um yeah i, I agree with that about the the intentionality and that sort of thing i, th- I think travis's response is that the the difference is explained by the fact that it's uh, the the physical things like a thought are they're by their nature they're related to something external, whereas other physical states are not. Uh, is that is that where the difference comes in, Travis? That you were saying.
2: Well, okay, so the the everything that we think we know about the external world or that uh, we have mental constructs about the external world. We have a mental construct. There's something in our in the mental domain that is representing that, right? So the aboutness is not between our brain and that thing. Right? The aboutness is between our mental construct of that entity that's in the external world um, and any in, in other relations that we're developing mentally. Okay. And, and, you know, and everything that's out there in the external world is mediated through our senses, right? So that there's there's a separate connection there, and
0: I think we could be in danger of going
2: down a rabbit trail here
0: if we're not careful. But, to, to me, it sounded like you just admitted a difference between, uh, you, you said it's like it's not a relation between your brain and that object, but your mental construct. And so right there, it seems like you're saying there's a difference between a mental construct and your brain.
2: Mm. No, I was, I was talking about the thing in the external world. I was, I was talking about the difference between the thing in the external world and the, our concept of it in the brain.
1: So can, can I ask a question that about this external relations theory? So here, here's one problem that I see, because it, it's not the case that our mental states, that in the first place, they're unrestricted. That it doesn't need an external world correlate i i can think about zeus he, he doesn't mm-hmm. exist. you know the, there's this unrestricted nature that hints that there's a, a difference there um and you know in terms of other physical relations there it's what you said there usually has to be two e- externally existing things that relate in order for a relation to come about so yeah that, that's sort of a i see sort of a difference there in, in the sense that it it's unrestricted, and it can be about you can have thoughts or beliefs about non-existent things, for example. Uh, Travis, yeah, what, what do you make of that?
2: Okay, so uh, I'm just trying to <clears throat> figure out exactly what you're saying here. So taking Zeus as an example, um, are you then saying that Because there is a brain state that corresponds to thinking about Zeus, and because there is a concept of Zeus, and that we can think about those as being related, that they are then separate.
3: Yeah, well, it, it hints
1: that it's not physical in nature because it, it's it's different. Usually, physical relations require two actually existing things for the relation to obtain. Whereas when on physicalism, my brain state is producing a thought of Zeus or a unicorn or some
2: non-existent. Okay. Yeah, that's where the difference. Day- right. So then, then I think in that case, that just goes back to what we had already talked about with the first person versus the third person, right? So the, the brain state is the third-person perspective, and the concept, the, the, the Zeus concept, is the first-person perspective.
0: Um, I, to me, it, but, it just comes down to how real is that first-person perspective. Like, you, that seems right. to be primary in your understanding of consciousness. And so it's like, what is that then? Like, is it a useful fiction, uh, an illusion on top of the physical?
2: No, it's a, um, it's the self-referential way of accessing that. I mean, we we can say first person and third person over and over and, and it doesn't seem like it's really clarifying anything hey we're, we're trying our best
0: here. yeah
1: <laughs> um what well, okay so
0: i, I, I guess, I, I guess my, my feeling is it, it, it can start to feel like you're trying to have your cake and eat it too travis where you're trying to treat the first person uh real which i really appreciate uh i you know that's a one step in that direction and so you're you're treating it as real but then you're going back to physical concepts of the rest of um, reality and analyzing mental events. But when Dale brings up these arguments that highlight the difference between a first-person experience and third-person, then you're sort of just saying, well, it's first-person. But I feel like it bottoms out at that point um, of, well, it's first-person. I guess I'm not hearing an explanation for that first-person where – as my explanation and Dale's explanation is that it really is something that exists and is separate from the physical.
2: Well, they don't call it the hard problem of consciousness because everyone's got to figure it figured out. Right. But okay, <laughs> so you're saying,
0: but I feel like that is even saying something that it's the first person is out there and. It's something, but we just don't know what it is yet. So I mean I guess that does map onto this is interesting. It does map onto the type C physicalist position. Right. And it does, I
2: what what I'm saying is yeah, there's we don't have the knockdown explanation, but to me that doesn't mean that you then jump to it being this whole different thing. That's so seems this like is, a, that's a big leap to me.
0: Okay, all right. So this is interesting. This is something I wanted to bring up. Um, I hope this isn't like jumping too far ahead, but I think to say you're a type C physicalist is to kind of concede the argument to the dualists, And what I mean by that is you're, you're kind of hunting to the unknown. And I I don't think, I don't think it's completely unjustified. Like you might absolutely be right that in the end, a million years from now, we'll see how it's all connected. But as far as our current knowledge now and the data we have to me just to be a type C physicalist is to say that the dualist arguments are essentially correct, but we just don't see the final resolution in the end. It, to me, it's the same as saying that ultimately God is physical. Like a Christian who would say, ultimately God is physical, we just don't understand how he's physical yet. And when we get to heaven, we'll see how it all connects. But at that point, I once again come back to, I feel like we almost do a disservice to language because what we mean by God and spirit Is not physical. And so we might as well just go ahead and say God and Spirit is different and to the analogy that uh, consciousness is different, that yeah, a million years from now we might understand how it's physical, but for all intents and purposes, the dualist arguments do go through and um, we might as well treat it as something different even if a thousand years from now we see how it's physical. Yeah, but
2: it's one thing to um, acknowledge the epistemic differences but it's a whole other thing to then translate that into an ontological difference
3: Let me uh, ask
2: you this Travis,
1: so I, I think depends on your answer but w- I might disagree with what Robert just said, just because you're conceding like are you offering uh, this first person, third person thing as uh, just like an equally possible or equally probable option you're not necessarily making a claim that
2: this is what it is in and of itself, right? Um, yeah, I don't I don't make any 100% claims on anything. No, no, but <laughs> if
1: you're claiming it's 51%, 51% or more, then Robert's point applies, and you've got sort of an issue there, but if you're just you know, I'm the one making a claim here, so I, I bear the burden of proof in terms of the overall context. If you're just saying, yeah, but what if it's some non-reducible first-person perspective you, you know that answer are, are you just throwing that out there as like a, a defeater or are you saying this is how i think this is how it probably is
2: um no i'd, I'd say that that's how it probably is um but it's i think it's also more fundamental than the sort of substance dualist position right because all i'm talking about is the epistemic difference i'm not I'm not trying to
0: go any further than that. Okay. Yeah. All right. F- fair enough.
1: So then, yeah, I think Robert raises a, a good
0: counter then to, to think about. Um, but I just want well, to. Well, let me. Oh, sorry. Right. Sorry, real quick, right. Dale. All um, right. If there's this epistemic difference, then what is your reasoning to sort of default to, if you are defaulting to it being a physical answer? in the end. So it seems like, are you kind of recognizing this epistemic gap between brain states and first-person experience or whatever, then what is your reason for saying, but in the end, we'll find out it's physical?
2: Uh, It seems the most parsimonious explanation, Um, and I think maybe that's a good segue for some of the other stuff that we'll talk about, because I I mean, really, it comes down to all the other stuff that we're probably going to talk about.
1: Okay, um, so I just want to raise one last final point before we move on to the next different, if that's okay, perhaps. Okay. Um, so just on your response to, I, I labeled the difference about thinking about Zeus and, you know, um, thought, mental states and that sort of thing. They're intentional, not extensional, like normal uh, physical relations re- require. Uh, they require two actually externally existing things to relate to each other. I, I don't think that your first person answer even even tackles it. Maybe I just didn't understand the answer, but it, it's just it's not it's not even tackling that difference at all because it just it's, it's not related. There's nothing inherent in a first person perspective. We're we're saying, look, we, we experience physical relations all the time. We know their extensional in nature. They require they're restricted. They're bounded, um, usually and they require an external referent and that sort of thing. Whereas my thoughts don't so yeah
3: okay
2: so i guess just to review we got there by considering the case where there isn't an external referent right i think i think you agreed that if there is an external referent then sort of the empirical path is a reasonable way to associate the concept and the thing right okay so in in the case where there isn't uh an empirical referent um then you've got essentially two concepts that you can hold in relation to each other you've got the direct first person qualia and then you've got you can think about that as a brain state and that's sort of a separate concept so then you have a a relation between your direct first person concept and your thinking about that direct first person concept as being a brain state
1: okay all right perfect i'll, I'll let you have the last the last word on that one um, okay so then here's my final difference and again this was a, a request from Travis so I, I wanted to throw in in the first place there are things called secondary qualities versus primary qualities um, so primary qualities or, or properties are thing, things that apply to physical objects like elasticity, malleability uh, hardness uh, shape, size, stuff like this um, whereas second secondary qualities are things that typically apply to our our conscious lives, Uh, you know, like intentionality that we spoke about before and, uh, you know, thoughts or the, sorry, the sensations of of colors and and, uh, taste, you know, things that require this first person perspective. Um, Yeah, and there there are fundamental differences, Um, you know, for example, we can say, going back to this sort of external relations thing, right, we can say with physical things someone can be taller than, shorter than, fatter than, um, someone else, but, or to the left of, or to the right of, but does it make sense to talk about thoughts or beliefs in the same way? Is my thought about an ice cream cone to the left of my belief about God? Um, Another difference is uh, in terms of these properties physical things are divisible like my neurons in, in my brain I can cut that in half uh, or something like that I whereas can you does it make sense to speak of cutting a thought in half um, so yeah there, there do seem to be these differences where secondary qualities can only be described ostensibly as Roberts said right is this. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. I'll I'll turn it to you, Robert. For first of all, what what do you make of this difference?
0: Um. Actually, let me just go ahead and pass it on to Travis and say we have a lot to <laughs> sure. talk about. And yeah. um, I don't think, I mean, I don't think I have anything to add, honestly.
1: Gotcha. All right, Travis. This was your uh, your request. So, what do you, what do you make of this? Um.
2: Uh, well, the 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 request that led to this was actually just to uh, clarify what we mean by physical and non-physical um but I guess more directly to your comment about divisibility, I guess I would note that some of the most prominent uh, neuroscientific theories around consciousness um, don't posit some sort of divisibility they're, they're called like higher order theories or like you, you, maybe you've heard of like the global workspace theory where essentially consciousness is the collective entity it's not um, it's not something that's know broken down and so consciousness just is when all of these regions are communicating at once Um, and then the other aspect of divisibility that actually is present clearly is division across time right like our consciousness changes over time so it's not like there's um, a complete absence of division there things things change and move Uh, just a,
1: sorry, off-topic question, but it'll be relevant when me and you discuss the cosmological argument. So do you believe in an A theory of time or a B theory, when, you, when you're talking about through
2: time? <clears throat> um, <laughs> I think the best theory right now is the B theory, but I, I'm also aware that there's um, a, a lot of work that's being done theoretically that suggests that, Time is more of a construct rather than uh, necessarily a dimension. Gotcha. Perfect.
1: Okay. Um, so, so yeah, I think so. In terms of your response, then, um, I, I hear you. I, I get that it's it's um, consciousness arises based on the the system as a whole. But my my point is again we're, we're not on the conscious subject where we're talking about how does conscious we're looking at the individual properties and states themselves so like the individual parts like my brain is a, a myriological aggregate of various parts and each of those parts are divisible um where there seems to be this difference if you talk about um can you take out one of my thoughts from my head and cut it in half or you know, are my thoughts spatially located? Do, do thoughts or, or sensations have spatial dimensions of all? It, there seems to be this sort of intuitive difference um, between physical parts and that versus mental thought, mental parts or something. Um,
2: okay, so if, say for example we were able to uh generate a thought by stimulating someone's brain like like we had the technology to do that um <clears throat> the act of doing that would have multiple points of contact like you know thousands maybe millions things that would get stimulated but it would still be one thought okay so now say that we take that exact same stimulation pattern and we take out a block of it. I would expect the thought to be different, even though it still seems like it's one. So there's a sense in which it is divisible. It's just not, um, I guess this goes back to the first person, third person, right? Like you don't, you can see the division from the third person, but you don't necessarily see the division from the first person. okay
1: robert i'll let you have the the last word on this one and then we can move on to the next argument if everyone's Um,
0: yeah yeah I, i don't i don't know if i have anything to add i i i tend to feel tempted to just feel like i mean like travis sort of just went back to the third person first person i think some of these do reduce back to you know just the odd nature of qualia um i think I guess Travis's response about the thought being different if one of the parts is different perhaps doesn't deal with the fact that it's still um a unified whole as it's experienced um yeah I guess that would be my response thanks right
1: um so yeah I think I think we can move on to the the second main argument and and this was one that um Robert, you, you recommended the, the knowledge argument and Thomas Nagel, so yeah, I'll, I'll turn it to you. You can give sort of the introduction. What What is the, the knowledge argument?
0: Sure. I, I will just briefly set it up because I think we actually talked about it a lot early on, so we can kind of revisit, see where we're at at this point. But um, Well, first of all, I just finished reading um, Thomas Nagel's book called Mind and Cosmos, and... I love this book. Um, I highly recommend it just because of how idiosyncratic it is. Like if you weren't a top notch, well-known philosopher, I don't think you could get this book published because by by a major secular press, because he's even questioning some tenets of evolution in it. Um, it's a really fascinating book. It's It's hard not to like Thomas Nagel just because he comes across so earnest and honest and he's just willing to question anything. Um, and he's definitely an atheist. Um, and you know, he doesn't, he doesn't think that theist position goes through, but he just questions some of these sort of assumptions. Um, and some of the things he would say that skeptics perhaps, um, or physicalists kind of sweep under the rug. And one of the biggest ones is consciousness. And, um, to, he doesn't actually outright give the knowledge argument, I don't think, in the book, but we basically have been alluding to it early on about the neuroscientist and the sort of uh, canonical explanation of it is Mary, the neuroscientist, who I, I can't remember, either colorblind, I guess, and she is looking at the brain of someone who is not colorblind, and let's say Mary is not only the best neuroscientist in the world, but even omniscient and understands every atom that is going on inside this person's brain does is she still missing some knowledge that she doesn't see red herself uh if she's looking at the brain of someone that sees red does she have the same knowledge as someone who actually sees red and i would say the prima facie answer is she is missing something because she hasn't seen red so once again, I sort of think this reduces down to just uh, the hard problem of qualia, of how real is that experience of seeing red, how concrete is it, and how much it needs to be accounted for in our ontology. Uh, but that that's sort of the basic argument. Excellent.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I, uh, in terms of my take, I, I think Robert sort of said it perfectly there. I I, I do think that the, the example uh, that Thomas Nagel gives um, does sort of highlight, there's a, there's a difference between propositional or third-party knowledge versus experiential knowledge. Um, I already know Travis's response to that, but I'll let him give it. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I think that there, does, there is this diff, clear difference in terms of how we obtain our knowledge, and yeah, um, we just know it. So so yeah, Travis, um, why, are, why are we wrong in this argument? I'm curious. Can you tell me what my response is? I think you're going to go back to the first first-person versus
2: third-person perspective. You're
1: going to prove me wrong, aren't
2: you? I <laughs> am. I'm going to prove you wrong. Well, yeah. son of a. Bitch. <laughs> so uh, this one has um, I've never quite understood the allure of this argument. Um, so basically, it seems really obvious to me that the neural patterns that form when you are studying the brain and how the brain um constructs an experiments experience are different from the neural patterns of the actual experience yeah so yeah so you can you can read a bunch of books and you can do a bunch of experiments and you can learn all of this information but that is a different information that's different information than the neural patterns of actually having the experience. Yeah. And, and
1: that's, so that is in a way, that's what the argument's trying to to say is that there are, you call it different information. There, there are different forms of, of knowledge.
2: Um, there's right. this, but all, if, if all of the knowledge is still encoded physically in the brain, then that doesn't say anything about
0: physicalism. I guess travis's point would be all right let's say we can record the neurological data of the person seeing red and then play it back inside mary's brain to sort of force her to experience red then problem solved
3: yep yep
0: that's right okay so
1: so yeah it's again yeah again it comes down to i guess yeah like what why is it that s- certain brain states produce this qualia whereas others don't? They're, they're all just the same physical, from a physicalist perspective, they're all the same. They're just in different configurations. And what, what is it about a certain configuration that'll produce qualia in one sense, or experiential knowledge, as I call it, versus just mere propositional knowledge?
2: Yeah, that, that's a whole different argument, though. I, I, I think, um, That's, you know, that's taking the knowledge argument and then moving it on to something else.
0: I'm I'm starting to think, actually, that there might be more agreement between the three of us than it might seem in the sense that we do really give a primacy to this first person experience. We really do. Um, And so that's why in one sense, Travis can just answer all these objections easily by, you know, appealing to that first person experience. Uh, But in the end, that is, I think, in agreement with me and Dale, so I think what will be interesting, Dale, is like, perhaps um, if you're going further into an actual description of a dualism, then there will probably be a lot more disagreement there. Um, Do you guys uh, think that assessment is accurate? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we all agree that there's an epistemic gap,
2: and, and that's really where a lot of this comes down to, so...
0: And the wouldn't you say the realness of qualia and that first-person experience and that it can't be relegated to a, a, an illusion? Yeah. Okay, all right. Um,
1: yeah, well, I, think, I think there might be a little bit more disagreement in this section, moving on to the sort of second issue of contention, maybe. Um, and that, that's asking, well, what is the nature of this conscious subject itself? where you know as as me and robert we're sort of dualists we we think that the conscious subject is ultimately non-physical it, it doesn't all derive from you know mental properties and states don't all derive from the physical brain or brain states and that sort of thing um so yeah the the first argument that i wanted to bring up here is you know what's called the the unity of con- the conscious field or uh the argument really hones in on the the unity of the visual field specifically, as an example. Um, So yeah, these are arguments by Eric Barak, who's written his PhD in this matter, uh, his thesis on this argument specifically, and and has various articles on it, but basically it says, look, at at any one given moment of time, when you walk in the room, um, you see a plethora you instantly gain a plethora of various sensations. You know, you you see, I see my desk. It, it's brown. With uh, I have a black chair. I, I have. Uh, I can see the shapes of the desk and the chair, and in, in and I can see the textures um, of these objects. And I get these these sensations all simultaneously, perfectly correlated to to the objects and that sort of thing, assuming no dysfunction or hallucinations, and. It, the these sensations come to me in a unified, uh, in a as a unified conscious field. They're not disjointed and that sort of thing. And this is an argument that there must be a non-physical substance that unifies or binds these various sensations together. And well, what what could that be? Could it be the brain? And the answer is is no, because the brain is really just a myriological aggregate of various physical parts you know it has certain system subsystems and and that sort of thing that correlate to various functions so when I'm seeing colors that's a different subsystem than when I'm seeing textures or when I'm seeing shapes and how how do you unify all of these various visual qualia into one unified field? Physicalists will, will typically say, okay, well, in the brain we've got two things going for us. We've got synchronicity, so it's, it's all happening at the same time, plus we have communication between the various uh, subsystems and that sort of thing. And this is what allows for the, for the illusion of this unity of consciousness to, to emerge. But the problem is uh, scientifically, and again, Eric Laroque's done a lot of research on this, including scientific peer-reviewed papers uh, he's linked to on his his site. And we know that there isn't communication uh, in terms of, so uh, here's a quote from him. So quote unquote, recent findings in neuroscience have strongly suggested that an object's features, specifically its color, texture, and shape are represented in separate areas of the visual cortex. Um, although represented in separate neuronal areas, uh, somehow the feature representations are brought together into a single unified object of visual consciousness. And this raises the question of binding, as those separate subsystems do not communicate with each other in the brain. Um, so yeah, that that in a nutshell is is what the the argument is. In order we do experience this phenomenological unity, the brain. If if our conscious subject is the brain that doesn't explain it. It would be disjointed, it would be atomistic. Um, so that, means, that must mean there's a non-physical substance that binds these things together. Um, yeah, it's, um, I'll turn it over
2: to Travis. What, what do you make of, of this sort of argument? Um, <clears throat> I don't understand why we should think that if it's physical, then there isn't any unity. It,
1: so it would be because there's no... Like, what what is it that would unify them, right? like So it would have to be some kind of communication. If my neurons in this part of my brain are lighting up versus another subsystem of the brain, there would have to be some kind of thing that links those together, right? Like communication or something. But okay.
3: scientifically,
1: we know that doesn't happen. They don't communicate, so...
2: Yeah, I don't know about that. Um, so the... I mean, some of some of the leading theories, like I, I mentioned, the global workspace theory, says that consciousness just is this lighting up of large uh, regions regions that span large uh, spatial dimensions in the brain, right? So it's the communication of all these disparate regions. Um, I I would have to really dig into any claims that there are conscious experience that utilizes different parts of the brains, even when they're not talking to each other in any way. And you got to take time into consideration as well, right? Because yeah, and uh, synchronicity is obviously a necessary
1: component. It, it, I would say it's not sufficient in and of itself. And, you know, I gave that example of the five chefs. So that there has to be synchronicity plus communication, for example. Um, well, let, let me just ask this before I go to Robert for his take. Um, would you agree if, there, if there's not this linking communication, what would you make of this argument if, if pretend you do the research into the science and you confirm Eric Lorac's right, there is no communication between these subsystems, what would you make of the argument then?
2: Was that for me or Robert?
1: Oh, that was for you, Travis. Sorry.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said you were <laughs> going to ask. You. I thought you were asking Robert. Like, he's ignoring
1: me. He doesn't like you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I thought you said you were asking Robert.
0: Okay. I thought um, you really stumped Travis. Uh, <laughs> I was like, yes, I got Adam. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Travis. Um, okay.
2: So if, if you could conclusively... Demonstrate that there wasn't any communication, um, and I guess you'd have to include electromagnetic fields in that consideration. Um, then, yeah, that would be a problem. But I, I'm skeptical that that is has been demonstrated anyway.
1: Okay. Uh, yeah. So I'll turn it to you now, Robert. Um, yeah. What, what do you make of this unity of consciousness or this conscious field?
0: Um, to be honest, I don't really have anything to add beyond the argument itself, so I'll let it keep moving on. Gotcha. Okay. Um, let, so let me
1: let me ask ask this then, I guess, and and we can move on. But Travis, do you, in your knowledge, uh, are there any parts of the brain that are isolated in terms of communication, isolated subsystems, or does every single part of the brain communicate with? Is it in communication with each other, on your view?
2: um i think there's some parts that are never implicated in consciousness um but that doesn't mean they don't communicate in some way i mean you got to consider the the scope of this network if even if you're including indirect paths it's almost uh impossible to think that you can't get from point a to point b anywhere Gotcha.
3: Okay.
1: Um, so, yeah, I think that's a good place to, to end. It, it really, this argument really hinges, then it seems, on is, is Eric Laroque, um you know, he, he reports the neuroscientific findings. And I'll, I'll give that in the sources for people. So, if you can get access to those academic articles to, uh, you know, let me know is he, is he lying or, or is, is there some truth to what he's saying? Um, Or is it being misinterpreted? Or is it being misinterpreted? Yeah, very good. Um, Because, yeah, I I couldn't get access to them because it was behind a paywall. Um, So, yeah, great. I I think we can move on from this argument and and put sort of a pin in it and to be continued. Hopefully, Travis will will let us know in the comments if he can gain access to that and confirm that. The second argument is something that Robert um, alluded to, and this is the enduring self argument that I, I mentioned on previous podcasts. So, so this is, again, uh, talking about the, the unity of the of the self, um, like conscious experiences, this time through time, across time, and more importantly, physical change. Um, so this argument really can be summarized as saying, look, if something's a physical object composed of parts, it does not survive over time as the same object if it comes to have different physical parts. And I think Travis might actually agree with this premise based on something he said earlier, but maybe it'll surprise me. Um, Premise number two, my body and brain are physical objects composed of parts. That one's fairly obvious. Premise three is that my body and brain are constantly coming to have different parts. And we know scientifically that every seven years we're, we're totally brand new in terms of our physical parts. Um, So, from the first three premises, we can get that, look, my body and brain do not survive over time as the same object. Um, So then premise number five is, but I do, I as the conscious subject, do. I'm the same person I was seven years ago as opposed to, uh, I'm I'm not somebody totally different. I'm not a badly cloned memory Dale or something, as my old partner David said. and then given the logical law of identity, we would have to know that, therefore, uh, I is the, I am not a physical thing. Um, yeah, it's, what, what do you make
2: of this, uh, Travis? Um, so my first impression is that this is confusing the notion of self-identity with the strict logical law of identity. I think those are two different things. Okay,
1: what, and what's the difference, just so people know? And... Uh,
2: Self identity is just the intuitive uh, sense of who we are, um, which can change. Uh, but the strict law of identity is like you get every single property laid out, and all the properties are the same. Okay, so
1: yeah, I would, um, I do think that it's using the logical law. Properties. We are looking at the various properties that the person has. Uh, In terms of the physical objects, right? They have certain properties. uh, I believe in they're just uh, physical things like the brain are property things. They they aren't substances in themselves. Um, And and there are key differences between a substance versus a a property thing. Um, So when when that loses. One of its parts, or comes to have different physical relations, it is something totally brand new. Um, mm-hmm. Now, with with your point, I think you're referring to premise number five. I am, I am, uh, I do endure through physical change, or something like that. And you're saying, well, that's self, just self identity, or something like that. But I'm saying that my essential properties endure. The, the properties that are essential to me, uh, that that make me a person. The, the I or Dale endure through the personal change. The accidental properties are irrelevant, like what kind of physical body parts I have and that sort of thing. So it, I think that's what the argument's trying to go for. And that's why it uses the logical law of identity. Um, and actually, I just realized before you answer, Ro- Robert, um, what, did you want to comment on this argument? Or
0: Well, just that <clears throat> once again, I think it comes back to we can't escape our own intuition that um, I'm the same person. In one sense, I'm the same person as I was yesterday. Now, of course, Travis said something about, you know, we do change. Our self-identity does change. In one sense, of course, that's true. But as far as that intuition of a ghost in the machine, tomorrow I don't wake up in someone else's body and someone wakes up in my body. Uh, As far as we're concerned were that same ghost in this machine. So when David says, you know, I'm a bad uh, tomorrow I'll be a badly cloned version of myself of, of today, then no one lives that way. Because if if I then said to David, Well then you shouldn't care if tomorrow you go you have to go to jail or tomorrow you will um suffer a lot. Um, you should only care in the sense of a moral stance of someone else suffering. But no one feels that way. The reason why we care is because it's, it's going to be us. We know intuitively that I can't escape the fact that tomorrow I'm going to be that same ghost in that same machine. Even if certain details are different, it still intuitively is going to be me. I, I think we can't escape that no matter how much we try to argue around it. And
3: yeah,
1: uh, over to you, Travis
0: um
2: that's that's fine i i I don't i don't deny the that we have this sort of self-identity that has to do with our continuity over time and uh, all of our memories and and our body and and all this stuff but that to me is completely different than the strict law of identity i I don't i just don't see the, the issue here i don't understand why the fact that i change in some way that You know if i lose a skin cell you know every every nanosecond we're changing in some way um but it's it's contiguous it's it's continuous and i and i don't understand why i should then think that um that is that's inferring something non-physical
1: okay so so let me first let me just ask you this then travis um Apart from premise five and this, this objection that you raised, do, do, I take it you do agree with the other premises in the arguments?
2: Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but sure. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, all right, cool.
1: Um, all right, so so it's definitely true. Look, every nanosecond we're coming to have different physical properties and, and, and parts or different physical relations. Um, however, that, that's sort of begging the question in terms of the, we do know that even even this self-identity again it it depends what like what is this self-identity there's something that's enduring through the this constant change and where the where my argument comes in is okay well what what does it mean to be an i oh you you have the properties that are essential to you for for you to be an individual individual person you know, oh, can you define what those essential properties are? Not, no, not all of them. I, I don't have a, a set of necessary and sufficient conditions for that. But nonetheless, I do have this properly basic belief. I, I as, as Robert said, I am the same. I, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be. If I kill someone today, I'm afraid that I'm going to be arrested uh, two days from now and go to jail because uh, I'm going to be the same person, even though. That's been lots of nanoseconds of, of change, physical change, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I do feel that the it's using the correct law of identity, the strict one. It, it's I'm not sure why you would. Yeah. Like okay. Okay. To... Fine. So.
2: Uh, okay. So you're but you're boiling it down to some essential, some sort of essentialism. Um, yeah. And so let's say that the essential thing. I guess why is that not physical? Why can't that just be the continuity itself—the fact that we have this physical continuity over time? Um, you know, even though the the particles change, there's there's still this constant relation over time between the me yesterday and the me tomorrow. Um, that I don't understand why that has to be non-physical.
1: Yeah, so so it's it's kind of like saying. Look, you, you can shed certain physical parts, um, but there's an essential physical core, um, and you would have to say that endures. And I don't think so. Number one, in the first place, our entire brain and central nervous system—let's pretend that's what—that's what physicalists essentially say—is our essential self, our conscious self. Um, these are are constantly coming to have new parts all the time as well. And under myriology, since Physical things composed of parts are simply myriological aggregates. They're property things, not substances. The second the second I lose that first nanosecond goes and I gain a I lose or gain a new physical property, it's a brand new physical object or property thing. Um, and only a non-physical thing could endure through physical change is the way I see it, because I see the okay. Go ahead. You don't you don't buy that?
2: Well, <clears throat> I, it kind of seems like that's begging the question, right? Like that's that's um, it feels like there's like some flip flopping between this sort of intuitionist sense of self identity and the strict law of identity. Like there, there's patterns. If you if you think of our self conception as a pattern in the brain, you know, just adopt the physicalist paradigm for a second, and then that's going to change. But there's going to be this continuity over time, um, where it, it's all connected, even though it's all physical.
1: Okay. okay. Well, let me. Okay, let me try this for a second, um, because I, I think what you're getting at is. Well, I can just arbitrarily define there are certain physical properties that are essential to me, and those, as long as those are enduring, I can say I'm the same thing. Do you think that you're the same person that you were seven, eight years ago, for example?
2: In one sense, yes, but in one sense, no. Okay.
1: Okay, so so scientifically, we know that not a single... you are totally brand new from a physical perspective. All of your parts are brand new after every seven years, so there, there can't be any essential, you know, minimal essential physicalist part that's still, that is endured after that mark, so, so in what sense are you being endured, like, what,
2: what is well, it? <clears throat> there, there's patterns in information that, that are enduring, and, and I guess you can say that those aren't physical, but all of our manifestations of that are physical, that we know of,
1: so this kind of sounds like it's kind of along the same lines that David, like a badly cloned memory information endures, sort of corrupted. And that is that what you're sort of going going towards?
2: I, I mean, it's it's similar to that, yeah. I,
3: <clears throat> okay.
2: But, um, but just just because just because um, we're acknowledging that we change in some way doesn't mean that we feel differently about our future self or our past self. We, you know, we still sense that that is us because it's continuous. It's there's, there's link. There's a link across time there.
3: Yeah. It,
1: yeah. I, I, guess I think just... I might
0: have a interesting way to reformulate this question. Um, sure. Are you guys both familiar with the ship of Theseus in philosophy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the, you know, we're, we're, basically beating around the bush of that uh philosophical thought experiment. And what what's interesting though is when it's a literal ship we're talking about, um, which is physical only, then the question is clearly open that as we change aboard every single day, the question is open when it's a different ship or not. Um like we have no problem saying that at least in principle it's a different ship. At least at some point, like by the time you've changed every board, um, you can debate it either way. But with uh, self-identity, with humans, with consciousness, that question doesn't seem to be open, that it seems like we're forced to keep calling it the same ship even after seven years when every board has been changed. And it is why is there that difference? Why is that question open for physical things, but not open to us when it comes to consciousness, because we know it's actually the same person, the same ghost in the machine.
2: Uh, I'm not sure I see the quite the difference that you're
0: proposing there. It just seems like that's not an available explanation for us to, to say, well, Bob really is a different person seven years later it's like intuitively we know due to consciousness that on one level he is the same person and yet with a ship we can just outright say no it's a different ship come on it's a different ship
2: um, I don't know that I would say it's a different ship I mean it, it's yeah the parts have been changed but the design the information the um, the pattern. The structure is the same,
0: and I guess that's where we get to the ontology, where it's like in the case right. of a ship, the pattern to me is an abstract object, uh, and I would say basically useful fiction. That it's a abstraction that's interesting to think about, but is not real. Not even not as cl- even if it's lightly real, it's not as close to being as real as consciousness because consciousness is arguably the most real thing to me that's the big difference Yep.
1: Yeah, yeah okay um, yeah I, th- I think that I like the way Robert um, phrased that it, yeah so I, that is essentially what what the argument is trying to get at um, I, I don't see how you know sort of information that's memory engrams or whatever it is can, can account for this, especially past this boundary line um, but even, even I don't even need this, this hardcore boundary line I, I, would, I would also take issue with when phys- physical things according to modern atomic you know, atoms and that physical things just are a myriological aggregate of atoms in a certain configuration and, and that sort of thing these fundamental particles whatever you want to reduce it down to so if you take out one of those things, it, it at that moment, it becomes a, a new physical object. Um, and Or if you add a new thing, or if there are new physical relations. Um, so the seven years thing is just sort of kind of like a game over, even worst case scenario if you won't give me that. But um, yeah, it's this argument works even if we don't even go to the seven years mark, there's still this notion of what is what is the essence of something of of a physical thing and it's a property thing it's a myriological aggregate of various atoms and that sort of thing Um, so yeah most people wouldn't have an issue with saying if you change one of its physical parts it does not endure or relations it does not endure as a the same thing
2: Uh, well (laughs) um, I I think it really comes down to you, you got to strip away those surface changes, and um, you know you got to get to the essence. And I don't see a reason to say that these uh, contiguous patterns and information um, need to be something other than physical. But okay, okay, perfect. We've probably beat that to death.
0: No worries. I'll let, I'll let you have the last one. We, we had to beat at least one argument to death. <laughs> guys. You know, we haven't had a philosophical debate if we don't beat something to death. <laughs> it's, all, it's all good. There you go. All
1: right. So, so this will be the last argument, um, the positive one. And this is the one I know Travis was, was interested in, the, the modal argument. And uh, basically this just says, look, premise number one is it is possible that I, my essential self, Uh, you know, self-identity, if you like, Travis. Um, I exist after all of my physical parts, uh, brain, body, and that are completely destroyed. Premise number two, it's not possible for my physical parts, like a body or brain, to exist after it's completely destroyed. Uh, That one's obvious. And premise number three, again, the logical law of identity. Um, So therefore, I I have this, this argument saying I have this modal property of possibly existing uh, even after my physical brain, body, and all of that are completely destroyed. So therefore, I'm not identical to my physical brain and body. I, I'm essentially a non-physical thing. Um, yeah, uh, tra- Travis, I'll turn it to you for, for your take on this.
2: Uh, okay, so my my objection here was that the possibility um, it does not translate into the concept of self-identity. So it's sort of like, really, I think it's gonna to reduce to the exact same thing that we just talked about, where the difference between strict identity and self-identity. Because um, the, the the linchpin of this argument, right, is that even the possibility of being uh, in different states after death is what distinguishes part of that self-identity, but I, I would just contest that that's not part of self-identity.
1: Okay. And Robert, what, what do you make of... Yeah, I'm interested in what you made of, of this argument. Robert, that's you.
0: <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, I was accidentally on mute. Um, I... Yeah, just responding to the argument directly i think it's just uh once again illustrating that when we're talking about the self we are talking about something ultimately different than the physical parts and then it becomes a question of how real is that self how real is that qualia and so i i think in some ways you can reduce it down to some of the stuff we we have been talking about before and just the hard problem once again, but I think it's a good uh, good way of illustrating that we are talking about something different.
1: Gotcha. All right. Um, perfect. Yeah. And, uh, again, I'm trying to... We're almost at the two hour mark, so I'll try to speed things up a bit. Um, so I'll just mention one last thing on, on this, and Travis actually uh, got to me in the comments when I originally published this, and he, he also raised
3: kind of a similar
1: issue, but the, the issue of trans world identity. which. I didn't mention in my series at all, and I think was a good point because this argument is uh, assumes that is true in order to work. Um, so, so basically, what trans-world identity is just very quickly it it, it assumes that look a, a thing uh, like like I uh, Dale or something like that exists in multiple possible worlds. So it, it's not like uh, Lewis would say a counterpart theory. There's not like a different person in another possible world, and a, you know a bunch of different quote-unquote dales no i'm the same across possible worlds and that's premise one is founded on that to say that i can exist i have this modal property of existing beyond my physical parts and um yeah i would just say that i take the, the same perspective as Alvin it. I, I do think that our essential properties um can exist as potentiality so in in the mind of god And this is the ontological reality where all possible worlds exist in in the mind of god so and you know i like planting planting his answer just saying it's just the way i could have been had i been actualized had god chosen to actualize that potentiality versus another one so um yeah i just wanted to raise that for the audience's awareness since i didn't raise that in my series um yeah uh so just sort of speeding up a bit uh travis um are there any counter arguments that you want to to raise and we don't have to do all of them uh since we're running up against time unless you want to if you guys are free to keep going then i'm happy to take take the time but yeah like why don't you sort of summarize what are some arguments that you think uh are good arguments against substance dualism
2: um okay well let's just run through the the ones that um you had actually given in your series as well in uh, I think we narrowed it down to three of them, so I'll just run through those really quick. Um, so the first one was the problem of interaction, um, and and so the the objection there is that the substance dualist has to go above and beyond what the physicalist has to do in order to explain what it means for some non-physical substance to interact with the physical, because clearly. Right. That clearly, there, our conscious experience is interacting with our behavior and our movements and all that stuff, um, and why that isn't that interaction isn't uh, uniquely detectable. For example, you know, why aren't we going in and seeing these unexplained action potentials just appear out of nowhere? Um, you know, and what's happening when the things that are neurologically controlled slip in and out of consciousness? Now, what does that mean? That the is the non-physical substance disappearing and reappearing, or, or what's going on there? Um, and another way to put this is, you know, what's what's happening when, say, we're learning to ride a bike, and we have this really intense conscious activity, and then that turns into something that is done subconsciously and is being managed completely by some subconscious part of our brain. You know, how, how do all of those pieces fit together with a substance dualism? Gotcha. Okay, um, so you want to do them one at a time? I'll just let you riff on okay. on that, I guess.
1: All right, cool. Um, yeah, well, first I'll turn it to Robert. I'll give him um, first uh, first try here. So, yeah, Robert, what do you make of some of these arguments that Travis raises against substance dualism?
0: So I think in general with arguments against dualism, uh, substance dualism, interactionism, um, I tend to be sympathetic towards the objector of like, hey, you're right, some of this does sound ridiculous. And so I tend to be pretty tentative about a positive argument for a dualistic ontology, like actually how it works. Um, I guess I tend to stop at this... Thing called consciousness seems fundamentally different than the physical, and then where to go from there is a very open question to me. And I will say I appreciated some of the responses you gave in your four-part series, and not that it completely necessarily cleans everything up, but I think it goes a long way to answering some of these objections. So I'm somewhat neutral on some of these uh, debates. I think one of the most interesting ones that has been brought up and um, that made me think is uh, an objection, well, a potential objection to dualism would be if we were able to look at every single particle in the brain and detect if it ever did something other than the physical law would suggest, um, and if that never happened. So if every particle in the brain did exactly what physical law said it should, then is that a proof against uh dualism and i think that's a really interesting thought experiment um it, i would say it's maybe a potential proof against it uh i'm sure creative dualists can come up with explanations but uh i don't know that that was an interesting one of recent but the ones that uh, the one that travis just brought up um and some of these other ones i i'll be curious to hear your response again dale on them
1: yeah it's yeah it's uh so so in the first place i, I just want to say uh, yeah thank you for both of you guys for for listening to my soul series I'm, I'm glad that you guys found uh what i did there helpful um i know that uh travis uh, wasn't i was kind of forceful in some of the presentations and that i just want to say that that had nothing to do with people skeptics like travis i think he's very thoughtful he actually takes the subject matter seriously uh that was more aimed towards uh, some other commenters that weren't, uh I I felt they weren't taking it seriously so I needed to kind of give them an oomph to to look into these and and really assess it so yeah just as Robert said uh, you know I I don't have easy answers for for all this stuff in terms of the problem of interaction um, I don't have a necessarily have yes this is the answer Um, and I also struggle with uh, so Travis kind of hinted at what what happens to the soul when we sleep? Because I, I don't remember my dreams uh, and that sort of thing. So, you know, what, what happens to your soul? And you can make up various speculations. For, you know, Muslims believe that when... Dreaming is very important to them. They believe the soul leaves the body uh, when you're dreaming and stuff like that. And when it re-enters the body, there's a problem. That's why you can't uh, remember stuff or, there, or there's issues there or whatever. Um, but... I would just want to say that we, we don't necessarily have to have an answer. Um, like the, Our lack of knowledge on the mechanistic question of how doesn't entail that substance dualism is false. Um, and on that, and even on I mean, that- I
0: would point, say it would if Travis or another skeptic could show how even in principle there couldn't be an interaction though. Sure.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah that's a good point yep and, and some of them attempt that with like the first law of thermodynamics or something um, but another a possible suggestion here I appeal to the fact that look there there is no intervening mechanisms in this it's, it's just it seems to be a basic immediate action and in, in the same way look I, I make a free will choice boom that produces a neuron in my head and it goes through the intervening physical mechanisms to raise my arm um, but there that initial you know, le- neuron lighting up or something. When I make my free choice of my soul, and that—that's just a basic immediate a- immediate action. Same way God created the universe in this basic way. That—that's at least an equally possible option that could address this mechanistic interaction problem and, and suggest that it, it's not an argument that that proves it false. Um, you know, obviously, in, in terms of neuroscience, I, I think that there's Look, we we have data that uh, are hard to explain on certain views of substance dualism, but under a a more modern or modified substance dualism interactionism, where we we understand the dependence of the soul on the brain, at least during this lifetime, there are various equally possible explanations. and I I don't think the neuroscientific data itself can be used to rule out uh, one, you know, the substance dualism interactionism option or property dualism um, option versus the physicalist thing. It, it's just too blunt to allow us to adjudicate one way or the other. Um, what And the last thing I'll just mention for sake of time. So, so um, Travis mentioned that uh, he, he asked me to talk about the development in the soul through both on an individual level and also evolutionary i guess when humanity started getting souls um so so yeah in terms of that uh, again as sort of a thomas i think the soul uh exists prior to um body at the moment of conception on an individual level and in terms of evolutionary like when when it came around in history and that sort of thing i i do believe in special creation uh in terms of the adam and Eve story again i'm I'm open. I'm not dogmatic to using some sort of evolutionary model, but, um, I think that the soul was a, spe- definitely the soul was a special creation. Uh, the, the soul doesn't emerge when the brain reaches a certain developmental point or something. So yeah, ho- hopefully that answered your, your question there, Travis.
2: Okay. Well, um, so it just occurred to me, you just went through all three of them, um, and I thought we were just sticking with the, the first interaction one, but um, we can sort of revisit those really quick, but I also try to do that quickly. Uh, sorry, sorry about that. I'm uh, yeah. sorry. Um, so on the interaction one, I guess two points. First uh, is that the, the, the response of, yeah, I don't know, but that doesn't prove it wrong. Obviously that applies to all the positive arguments that you gave uh, previously uh, against physicalism right so the physicalists can say the same thing about all those other arguments so it's really just a matter of where do you land when you look at the totality of all of the different data um and then the uh second thing that i was going to ask was if you put yourself in that thought experiment that robert posed um where you had complete access to all everything that was going on in the brain, and you could monitor everything, and you never saw anything new injecting. You could always trace everything. How would you interpret that? Uh, Okay, so, sorry, ask that again.
0: Um, Travis, that's the one where all the particles obey law at every point.
2: Yeah, because the interaction would seem to necessitate that there's some sort of you know first mover event going on somewhere in the brain um and if we had the technology to monitor all of that and we never saw anything that didn't arise from a previous event would you still think that substance dualism was uh, a good explanation
1: okay um so if if there were yeah, so so obviously in terms of libertarian free will and if I make my soul makes a decision to do something, there does have to be that initiating physical response that, that interacts with that. So if we could prove that it had physical it was that initial response was determined physically, would that disprove my notion that substance dualism is the is causing that initial physical reaction? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think it would it would cause so that it could be both and if if I want it, again it's problematic but you could say it's both and providentially it, it's the physical world was set up to uh, you know set up the prior conditions that would go at, that God knew in accordance with my free will choice that would seem ad hoc though. Um, it wouldn't be the simplest explanation. So, yeah, that that would be something that I would need to look at and might be problematic.
0: I would say it would be a severe blow to dualism. Uh, Maybe recoverable from, but uh, I would absolutely say it would be, just from my, you know, prima facie thought on it, it, yeah, a severe blow to that argument.
2: Okay. And would you guys agree that all of our empirical data to date is consistent with that it doesn't it doesn't show it right we don't have that level of information but it's consistent with that
0: yeah i think so i i mean just yeah just looking at um yeah the level of which we can analyze things they're not witnessing tiny miracles all the right. time in the right. yes True. Sure. Okay.
1: yeah you yeah, know I, I again i would agree in in general yeah, we, we have this knowledge that physical things are in general determined by prior physical events and stuff like that objects
2: okay um and i and i think the you know the neuroscience objection and the interaction problem are, are really they're sort of two sides of the same coin um, the neuroscience objection just saying <coughs> you know why why is there such this strong correlation it seems with if substance dualism is true that that seems unnecessary you know why why does all this physical activity even when you're not you know moving muscles when you're just thinking why does that have to be there Um, it doesn't seem like it's a necessary element if substance dualism is true
1: yeah so so in terms of um in terms of the, f- the first argument, just to clarify, were, were you trying to maybe make like a prior probability argument when you're you're asking about in general if physical things have prior determining causes?
2: Are you talking about the interaction problem that we just discussed?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to ask that one quick question. Like,
2: were you trying to oh. make like a prior probability
1: argument or?
2: Yeah, it it just it seems like all of the empirical data that we have so far is um, consistent with. The you know the purely physical explanation, whereas there needs to be something else um, that goes in to to fit with substance dualism. So that, yeah, I guess you could call it a probability argument.
3: Okay,
1: all right. And in terms of so substance dualism, interactionism. Shoot, my mind just went blank. here. what was your what was your question about that?
2: Just- um, why is there this? extremely tight correlation, right? It it seems like if you've got someone in a vegetative state um, physically, right, we can still kind of get a sense of what they're thinking about. In fact, you know, they do these experiments now where they can tell tell that uh, whether someone's thinking about tennis versus strawberries based on brain scans and stuff like that, right, even though they're not doing anything. uh, This tight correlation seems unnecessary. Uh, with substance dualism, whereas it fits perfectly with the physicalist.
3: Yeah, it's it's
1: so so obviously it's not logically necessary or or something like that. But I, I would say it, it's it is to be expected if we on substance dualism interactionism we, especially if um, on a atomistic view where where our physical, creative body are just modes of the soul itself, we would expect this correlation to to obtain. Um, you know they're, they're interacting this way so I don't see it as problematic um, I guess if you want to get metaphysical why why couldn't God have made it so that they don't correlate and then we could say oh there's proof that the soul exists or something like that but yeah that would get into sort of my Molinism defeater or talking about God's providence and that sort of thing but just just on the face of it not going into that higher theological level it, it does make sense to me as to if our soul uh, is interacting with our body would need to express or manifest itself through the physical brain and therefore that controls the physical body in that so yeah i don't see it as a strained explanation
0: okay and then, on my, sorry, i was just going to say on my end um it might be helpful to say that probably i don't know seven years ago or so i was pretty close to being a christian materialist for exactly the sort of reasons travis is describing um obviously there is this very tight correlation relation between the two um i think i ultimately came to this point where i realized how hard the hard problem of consciousness is that forced me to treat treat qualia and consciousness different and that put me more in a thomas nagel uh point of view where it started to seem almost in principle not possible to reduce it. Uh, but the road you're walking us down, Travis, makes a lot of sense. You know, like there obviously is this tight correlation. The more we've learned about the brain, uh, the more science we've learned there, it it is very tightly bound there and that it is substantial. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to add that. And, and could it be that Because with the Christian message, we
1: say that God is God is world affirming as opposed to world denying. Again, it's a a crude caricature of Western like Christianity versus Eastern religions or that sort of thing. But there there is the sense that God, the physical is something good. We're we're sort of naked without our physical brains and bodies. You know that provides us experiences of the world that are that are good um, and that couldn't be uh, experienced without the physical um yeah so like maybe that would be a, something to consider there as well
0: that's true that's kind of responding to the christian who assumes a more platonist concept uh whereas that's a mistake on um th- that's a mistaken understanding of christianity that you know that the original christian view is the jewish view is much more affirming of the physical gotcha
1: perfect all right um yeah. Uh, so, so, Travis, on, on that, are you happy with the negative evidences or?
2: Um, okay. So then on the, I guess on the developmental challenge, I just wanted to um, oh, probe probe that a little bit further. Um, you're holding to a, a sort of special creation. What, what's your stance? Cause you're talking about the soul there, but we've been talking about consciousness the whole time. So, and I think you previously acknowledged that some animals were conscious. Um, is Is that also a special creation event? Um,
1: so so yeah, so animals have spirits and souls, I would say, I wouldn't necessarily say they're they're I don't think of them as persons. Um, so they're you know they're not sentient beings or that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I think that the souls and spirits are special creations of God uh, as well.
2: Okay, so um, when an egg is fertilized and this starts to develop into a, a physical being, is he acting at some point in that process?
1: Is he acting?
2: like like, like what what what's happening? Where does this, where does this the the soul slash consciousness come in?
1: i think god creates it ex nihilo i i don't know okay. if he does it does he speak it into existence like he did creation or whatever but yeah okay. I, I think divine conception um ex nihilo the, the soul pops.
2: and he's doing that for all
1: creatures that are conscious for for all creatures yeah that have a soul or and and that sort of thing mm-hmm. uh it's debatable whether do, do ants have spirits or souls i don't I don't think so Pl- plants don't for example
2: um, yeah okay so what do you think about the, the gradation view where it seems like there's a more highly developed consciousness and then there's really low bare minimum kind of consciousness uh, so yeah
1: I think it's it's true we're, we're God creates our, our souls with varying degrees of faculties or capacities. Um, you know, obviously, human beings are the pinnacle of that, that's why we're the image of God and, and we're unique to the animal kingdom. But animals share some of the same capacities and uh, faculties of soul that, that we do to lesser degrees.
2: Okay, and then I guess just to tie that back to the neuroscience, um, it- there's another correlation there, right? Where the more developed conscious beings have these uh, more interconnected brains or they have certain brain structures, whereas the less consciously developed beings have simpler brains or or missing certain brain structures. Um, So again, you've got this really tight correlation between the degree of consciousness and the brain. Yeah, I
3: think
1: that's a weaker a weaker argument than the, the other correlate. I think the other correlation argument was a bit stronger, uh, even though I was unpersuaded by this. This is what we would expect. So, so think of it on a Thomistic uh, thing, right? We, our soul, if our brains and bodies develop according to our soul overall, they're manifestations of the soul. If they're a mode of the soul itself. Then it acts like a blueprint, and and this is kind of what information theory and biology gets into it, and um, I think it's called organicism, so, you know, there's this notion that the soul exists, or or the organism exists as a whole, and it it sort of acts as a blueprint upon which the DNA functions and builds the the body and brain structures.
0: Okay. Um. Okay. Uh, one interesting point here is uh, Thomas Nagel, what he points to in his book. He, he does not, he may, mostly is trying to describe a problem and not give a solution, but the potential solution he gives to both the irreducibility of the soul, or sorry, of consciousness, and also moral value. Um, he actually points to a naturalistic teleology, which is really interesting. And I mean, he is very forthright that te- teleology is. Laughed at these days, you know, among modern scientists, uh, especially. But it's interesting that what you're describing, Dale, with your Thomistic view, uh, almost sounds a bit teleological with it, the blueprint. Yeah, I, I do have trouble knowing how to cash that out into reality. Like, I get what you're saying with the blueprint and stuff, but it's it's a good example to me of like, oh, that sounds nice, but I have trouble knowing what that literally means, that the whole body is, like, part of the soul and is an extension. So I I don't have a proof against it or anything, but I do have trouble really fully making sense of it.
1: Okay. All right. Um, And did you want me to respond to that, or you're
0: just Well, I'm curious, Travis, does that uh, describe how you feel as well, to a degree?
2: Um, You mean do I agree with Nagel?
0: Well, uh, my, well, really, my take on what Dale just said about the what he just described as the blueprint, and I mean, it kind of sounds nice, but do you—is it just this struggle of like, how how do you cash that out into reality a little bit? Yeah,
2: uh, yeah. So essentialism in general is bothersome to me, um, largely because of the issue of demarcation. It just seems like. When we look around at the world, there is no clear way to split things up that way, uh, and and this is you know why I asked about this whole gradation issue is it, it seems like there's a continuum there, and you can go from non-conscious to minimally conscious up to this you know to humans consciousness, um, and it's all contiguous, and it seems sort of arbitrary to interject that there's some cutoff uh, where there's some essential thing that we call consciousness. Sorry, yeah. okay, I'm back. Uh,
1: did you get, I think, uh, alright, never mind, it's still recording and everything. Yeah, it just cut out for a second. So I heard nothing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We just uh, made right. two really brilliant we, arguments about consciousness. Yeah, so, we so sorry, just
2: completely destroyed everything you said. So,
0: yeah. <laughs> Well Dale I am curious do you uh yeah what is your response to what I was saying about uh the tele- teleological aspect of the Thomistic view and if how does that kind of cash out into reality I guess
3: Yeah
1: absolutely and I think you're right it
0: but I, I would say that there are um
1: this is a, a growing uh awareness in, in the field of biology so instead of the soul they just insert information um and and that is that sort of um uh, what's the word uh pre that sort of uh, serves as the blueprint for the teleological end of how the body develops upon conception and that sort of thing so that the, this is a growing trend in biology in the intelligent design movement so jonathan wells for example will will speak about this and that sort of thing so i i'm just saying I, I would say that that's the soul like a, a substance that makes more sense than positing information as some kind of abstract entity or something like that or you know even a physical entity that that's serving as this um, but yeah it's it, absolutely right there, there's this teleological end goal I, I don't see it as as a problem um, I wish I had heard what Travis had said so I could respond to that but yeah, it's, it's not really an issue to, issue for me in, in terms of that sense. Does that uh, answer your question, Robert? Uh, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Okay. Um, all right, so I think we can move on to the last section here. And I wanted to include this again because I, I didn't put this in my series or anything, but it, it's the another option of idealism or Platonism and, and that sort of thing. And I'm sort of curious as to, to what you guys... Make it this so, yeah. Robert, I'd actually like to start with you. Um, there, there are some, let's pretend physicalism is, is total garbage. I, I've refuted Travis, uh, we all know it. Um, <laughs> um but then we ha- <laughs> sorry, Travis. Um, but then we have people like, uh, like uh, Tara, who is one of our listeners, and she she or Anthony66, they're, they're go for the idealist option, forget about dualism. No, everything. Is, is ideas that the, everything is mental. There, there is no such thing as physical uh, stuff. So, yeah, well, what would you make to the idealist option?
0: So. Um I think I am i don't have a super firm grasp on all the different options out there in this range, but I think I tend to be, and I might be misusing these terms and you can let me know if I do, but I think I tend to be epistemologically an idealist. And what I mean by that is I want to start with consciousness because that is where we are forced to start. And I don't want to ever forget that. Um, so when we talk about objective reality, I I love talking about it. I want to treat it as objective and physical. but And so that way, I'm not an idealist, I believe. Um, I do believe it's real and objective and mind independent. But from an epistemological standpoint, I want to emphasize and never forget that we have our individual viewpoint that we can't escape. So I'm a Cartesian in that epistemological standpoint. Um, Now, would panpsychism— Um, would that fall under idealism?
3: Yeah, yeah, it's related.
0: Okay, I mean, I think that's an interesting option to try to, if you're going to try to mesh the two together, put um, mental as part of the physical world, in a sense. Um, I don't think it's reducing everything to being mental. Mm -hmm. I guess some some panpsychism theories are. Uh, So... Uh, it's interesting uh, the idea that even atoms are mental on a very uh, minute level. Um, I don't know what to really make of that. I, I think it's an interesting uh, way to uh, to look at things as a, a thought experiment at the very least, though. Gotcha. Perfect. Okay. Uh, yeah. And Travis, what what?
1: How would you come against this um, idea? What would you make of idealism?
2: Um. I mean, there's there's really no sort of knockdown argument because we are dependent on our conscious experience in order to even perceive anything. Um, <clears throat> but I, so I would just appeal to common sense and, and that physical realism just appears to be the natural conclusion. Um, and then of course the idealist just says that yeah, that's that's part of what is in the mental world. Um, so another possible extension to that that you can that I've discussed with some people in the past is that um, there's sort of a probabilistic Occam's razor approach you could take. Whereas Mm -hmm. um, if, if uh, external world realism is the case, then that's actually simpler than idealism because idealism entails everything that leads us to external world realism, plus this extra thing of there only being mental uh, properties and, and whatever you know causes that. So it, there's an add-on. So in, from a sort of Occam's razor perspective, it seems like idealism is actually more complex, even though some people like to say that it's simpler.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's- I think there's something to that because you can use that against the simulation argument that this mm-hmm. is all simulation. Because then you have both the simulation itself and then the producer of the simulation. Right. right. Yeah. I, I sort of agree as well that, that
1: there are difficult trying there's no knockdown argument i think is uh, how travis phrased it and stuff but and in one sense um in a way i guess you could say I, I i do believe that all of reality is is grounded in the mental because i'm i'm a what's called a divine conceptualist so i, I believe that all potentialities exist in the mind of God and then he chooses to actualize one and and then they actualize but um, still we're, we're not reality is, is dualistic there are physical things external reality that's physical and then there's non-physical things like the soul and that and god and that sort of thing so the the best thing that I tried to do and again it was just sort of me experimenting so I might be curious what you guys think uh, if you can develop it but with some of the idealists on the boards I, I tried to say well well look there is sort of a duality because there are these primary qualities uh, like elasticity, malleability, there are these properties that on you as a conscious agent on a phenomenological level are aware of. I can touch my computer, I can feel its hardness, I can see its shape, and I, I experience this as a, these properties con- as a conscious agent. So in that sense, there is a, a duality in that you know my thoughts have these various properties and versus other objects that bear uh, in addition to that bear primary qualities as well. And so you can't deny that there's these primary qualities. And then you could try to say, well, there there are at least some physical objects or objects that have these physical properties. And then maybe try to turn that up. what do you guys make of that? Am I just blowing smoke or <laughs> not good, Travis? Uh,
2: I, I think they would just say that those are Two different types of mental properties, right? Two
3: different types.
1: Okay. Right. Okay. And and Robert, what do you make of?
0: I I feel like I would have to hear the nutshell version of that argument again to give a good. You're saying what's the difference again, or what's the basic argument?
1: I'm just I'm just basically I'm essentially saying you even on a phenomenological level, on a conscious level, we do experience. Things that have primary properties that display hardness and uh, and you know uh, elasticity, malleability, whatever physical properties that that um, physics textbooks will talk about. Um, so we can't deny it, it's like denying that I don't exist. It, it's like going back to this properly basic belief. We we do have experiences of this properties and we. Idealists would say that these properties don't apply to everything, just some things. So we could get to a, a dualism thing and, and say that there are at least some physical things that exist.
0: Um, I feel like I would have to unpack that argument more to get beyond what Travis just said, which is ultimately you could just subsume it all into, you know, a uh, the mental. Into it's all in my head. Um, like a true solipsism, I guess. Um, yeah, I'd I probably have to hear more of that argument to really grapple with it.
1: Yeah, yeah I think I think Travis's response is probably how they come back. I, I, again, it would go back to sort of our difference. I would just sort of question, but why, why the difference? If we're all the same stuff, what what is it that would make different properties exemplify in in some things versus other things? So, uh, yeah, cool that that's my take. I I think that's it for for all the topics. Um, I'll I'll turn it over to to everyone. Does anyone have anything else to to say in terms of the the topics before we close? No?
0: No, no, no. I, I uh, just to sum up two quick things. Um, First, uh, I want to point out that whenever a physicalist says that consciousness is an illusion, right there that sort of assumes a viewer of the illusion. So it's just another example of how we kind of can't escape our own qualia. that as soon as we say we think we've solved the problem of the consciousness by saying it's an illusion, it's like it's an illusion to who? Who's that who? Um, so I just thought that was funny as we we're talking through it. that came to mind. Um, and I don't know I'm sympathetic to Travis's take. Um, i I am also trying to have. A ontologically humble perspective as far as what consciousness truly is i guess for me to actually hold out that if you take the first person seriously if you take qualia very seriously and it truly is a concrete thing rather than like a useful fiction or an illusion then to say that that thing is also reasonably physical is just abusing the word physical as we use it now. To to me, it's the same thing as two Christians arguing if God is physical. That, yeah, if you redefine the word physical to include everything, sure, God is physical. But it's not what we mean, at least on an everyday sense of the word physical. So I think there might be a definitional argument here rather than uh, a a literal argument. Um, So uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed this discussion. I think um, we covered a lot and um, uh, had some good, real good back and forth. Yeah,
1: excellent. Yeah, and thank you. It was your uh, suggestion to do this topic, so good on you, Robert. Um, <laughs> Great, you made the show happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, Travis, I'll, I'll turn it to you. You can give sort of your closing closing statement.
2: Okay. Um, well, I, I guess what it comes down to for me is that. It just seems like we are continually gathering a a wide body of evidence that establishes uh, an extremely tight correlation between the physical and the phenomenal. And all of the data so far points to causation only running from physical to phenomenal and not in reverse. And when I look at the arguments for uh, non-physicality, to me, they're at best inconclusive. Um, And so when I just look at everything as a whole, it seems most parsimonious to explain all of this data by suggesting that the phenomenal just is physical in some sense, even if we don't really have a satisfactory explanation for how that is at this point.
1: Perfect, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll just close off the show by saying I, I really enjoyed the, the talk with you guys. I, I learned a lot. I always learn a lot when I, uh, when I speak with Robert and with uh, Travis, I think they have very interesting things and informative things to, to provide for you guys in the audience. So, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, I think Robert said he's going to provide a, couple, uh, a source or two or something, so I'll provide that in the blog along with mine. Um, and if Travis has any sources, feel free to send them to me. Um, yeah, it was, it was an awesome, awesome conversation. And what we have coming up next next time is I have an interview with Justin Brierley from The Unbelievable Show. So going to be speaking uh, about a bunch of things you know his show and what his projects are as well as uh, the topic of hell uh the topic of women in positions of authority and that sort of thing so yeah looking forward to that guys and yeah have a great have a great week everybody thanks thanks a lot dale